Hello and welcome to the third episode of Cast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. I am Rod Barnett. I am Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts as we waltz our way through mm-hmm. the films of Paul Nashi. Tonight, doing, doing the Waldemar Waltz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Waldemar Waltz. Well, not bad. I like that. Tonight we go through, in our third episode, The Night of the Howling Beast, which is actually the eighth Waldemar Daninsky mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of strange when you think about it overall. As we stated, as we stated at the beginning of the first podcast, mm-hmm. we don't intend to go through these films in any kind of chronological order or try to go through mm-hmm. them in any... Um, kind of coherent fashion we're going to jump around from film to film from year to year and uh kind of pick and choose as we go in an attempt to get different types of films we don't want to do two werewolf films in a row we don't want to do two crime films in a row we kind of want to jump around and do different things so that you get a different you get a you get the the feeling of the different flavors the different Mm -hmm. types of films Mm -hmm. that he did yeah i think a lot of people's uh, perception of these of of, um nashi a lot of times is nashi is the werewolf so it's always fun to Show people just how much variety there was to to in his work. I you? agree. He did he did all kinds of films. He even did some comedies, none of which I've seen. Mm-hmm. Tonight's film uh, we're going to launch into. Uh, last last time out we did uh, we did Horror Rises from the Tomb, which was uh, Troy's mm-hmm. introduction to Paul Nashie years ago. Mm-hmm. Tonight we're going to do my initial Paul Nashie film, the the first first of his movies that I ever saw, which I saw under the title Night of the Howling Beast, which is how I end up thinking about it, no matter what. But the film, as so many of Paul Nash's films, is, is known under several different titles. Yeah. Um, some of these are, are, are a definite doozy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them are a bit too descriptive, and some are kind of what the hell are you talking about kind of things. Uh, as we said, we know it under Night of the Howling Beast, which is the, the USA title. The, the original title, the Spanish title, is best translated as the Curse of the Beast, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a is a slightly better title, mm-hmm. which gives you an idea of uh, what what's going on. I mean, it's mm-hmm. definitely a werewolf mm-hmm. tale, but at right. the same time, it's it's a, a bit more general and therefore lends itself to maybe being thought of as something different going mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So there's a Curse of the Beast, mm-hmm. the Horror of the Werewolf, which is not bad. That's not a bad one. Uh, the Werewolf and the Yeti. Which is listed as a European title. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's that's always one that when I would see that listed, I would go, oh, "Werewolf on the Yeti." That's yeah, got to be. Like, that's that's got to be the that, film I know. Say, yeah. How, how, yeah. How many? How many, just about to say, how many times did the, <laughs> how many the werewolf, werewolf versus Yeti films are there? <laughs> actually, and I don't think there are that many. But the one title that absolutely stuns me, and I would yeah. love to get a copy of this because apparently it's some kind of cut version. I'm assuming they yeah. took a lot of violence out is Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know. It, maybe they recut the film. It makes me to, wonder if there's even a, is there even a werewolf in the movie, you know? It yeah, be, I know. I mean, what what is is it a film focusing on the bandit yeah. the bandit's palace? I don't I don't know, but Hall of the Mountain King is definitely the strangest retitling <laughs> of this film that I can imagine. This film uh, was released in 1975. Mm-hmm. And as I said, by this time he had done this was his eighth werewolf film, his eighth uh, Daninsky film, so he's moving right along. He's not uh, uh, slowing down. First one was uh, in '68. Seven years later, this uh, is his eighth one. So uh, these things are coming out pretty fast and furious. Yes, he did have a hand in writing this one. He uh, he is listed as the main writer under his real name of Jacinto Molina, of course. And this is uh, 
This is a doozy. I'm always impressed by Nashi's own description of this film. He often refers to it as a comic book film. As a matter of fact, his um, his description from his uh, biography is uh, another fascinating comic on film, the eighth chapter in the Valdemar Daninsky saga, this time opting for an out-and-out exotic action-adventure scenario. On this occasion, the legendary lycanthrope comes up against all manner of perils, including female werewolves, Tibetan bandits, ancient curses, and above all, the Mongolian tyrant, Saka Khan. It definitely is all of that and yes. uh, a whole bag of chips. Mm-hmm. It, it tries to be a little bit of everything. Primarily, though, I would call it a kind of comic book action-adventure film with a lycanthrope tossed in yeah. good measure. Yeah. And a Yeti sort of wandering on the perimeter there. <laughs> I know, and that's something we're going to have to we'll talk have to, about. Yeah. Because the Yeti is really just kind of... One, one, one would be tempted to call it maybe icing on the cake, but at yes. the same time, it's 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 almost uh, extra pieces of bread on the sandwich. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. We'll, yeah. Yeah. we'll get it's, into that. I know. As we go I just wanted to see your thoughts on that, too. So. <laughs> Before we start on the film proper, I want to just mention to people who are interested in Nashy, Nashy fans or people who are just getting into his stuff, but... Uh, so with the fact that he passed on at the just a couple of months ago, um, there's a couple of very nice tributes out there that uh, you might be able to find on in the on the magazine racks. Uh, there's a magazine, a Horror Hound magazine, actually the issue number 21 has a really nice article. Nashi uh, focusing a lot on the artwork of his you know his his movie posters and that sort of thing, and then has a nice little sidebar tribute. And also the upcoming issue of Rue Morgue, which uh, issue 98, will is also has got Nashi on the cover, and will have a tribute article to him. So. As well uh, as an interview, from what mm-hmm. I understand. I can't wait to read that. That's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, me either. Cool. Well, uh, Night of the Howling Beast starts off with a pre-credit sequence, which uh, you could just call the pre-credit attack sequence. Right, uh, right. We have a, a, an expedition of men tromping through the snowy mountainside somewhere. It's not identified yet. And out of nowhere, just off frame, actually, mm-hmm. uh, a, a large a hairy beast leaps out and attacks these men, killing them rather adroitly. Uh, mm-hmm. Slaying mm-hmm. them very, very, very easily, and uh, leaving a, uh, a visible backpack laying in the snow. That's the only thing left. Mm-hmm. Well, not alive, but right. never <laughs> And this scene is actually, this is, we'll see, it's kind of that old staple of uh, many 70s films, is the day for night uh, thing. And I don't know if in this case that's supposed to be that, but there are definitely cases know. within this film where it's obviously supposed to be night. And, and that was, a, you know, just the kind of process of uh, when you're filming with a, either a lens or a filter or late in the afternoon to try and pass it off as night. And there's certain times in this film, as we'll see, where that becomes a little uh, confusing as to whether it is supposed to be day or yeah, night. Yeah, I'm not sure that this opening scene is is that for yeah. sure or not. Yeah. But, it de- yeah, it definitely crops up. In this case, it has a really nice kind of moody opening yeah. to the film because of the fact of being dark and it's and the, the Yeti is, is, is sort of a, a dark, shadowy character that just sort of leaps out of nowhere. And it's, it's actually... A kind of effective opening. It's and it's kind of bizarre because you're definitely not you don't know what to expect. Right, I mean, right. After the credit sequence, we we leap directly into the film proper by jumping to London with bagpipes. Bagpipes. Thank you for <laughs> pointing that music. out. Yes, I thought that was great because I, I don't understand yeah, that. I'm I mean, assuming that. I'm assuming, I think we're supposed to think it's Scotland, uh, and so but they. It's but it's London. obviously, it's obviously London. There's a big band right there, but the fact they play the bagpipes, I, I don't. Uh, yeah, it was that was that was what I was going to ask you too. Is like, okay, we're we supposed to think this is Scotland or England, right. but I love the little snippet of bagpipes there. Just to, I have no idea what <laughs> it's. It's one of the. It's one of those wonderful European film mysteries. I have no idea why that's there, but nevertheless, we have bagpipes and. Uh, it's it's a WTF moment, folks. Yeah. Uh, what we have is Valdemar Daninsky visiting his friend, the professor. Lacombe, Professor Lacombe. Correct. 
He's been called in by the professor for some reason. And this is a, I, I was never quite clear whether this was a museum or a university or just a science institute or sort of all of the above it, uh, where he's supposed uh, to be. I don't know that they specify. They, they may, but I'll have to mm. admit if you miss it, I miss it as well. Yeah. Nevertheless, he's known the professor for years, apparently was a student of his at some yeah. time in the past. They, they, they greet each other. And actually, the professor here has a, has a great little line that I really like. In the English translation, uh, we, we should uh, point out, yeah. before we go much further, of course, right. we should point out that there's not a good English language DVD or video release no. of this that you can readily get your hands on. So what we're dealing with is, quite bluntly, a bootleg mm-hmm. of the film, which looks a heck of a lot better than my old VHS copy. Yes, definitely. But is still, nevertheless, far from perfect. Right. It's a it's a it's a good way to see the film. It's definitely uh, definitely well worth seeing in this manner. But uh, we still do await a really great video release of mm-hmm. this film. Mm-hmm. So uh, we will at times note some of the imperfections in the presentation. Right. But uh, we don't really have a DVD to recommend to you for this mm-hmm. for this particular film. And this is the dubbed, yeah, as you said, this is the dubbed version. So we don't uh, we can't compare it in this case to yeah. the uh, to the original language, the original subtitle version. Yeah, we don't have a subtitle version. We don't have a version in Spanish or in any other language. All we've got is the English dub and. Sometimes the English dubs can be, shall we say, idiosyncratic. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, the line that I love from the professor is, time rapidly goes by. <laughs> Which is, I'm, yeah. I'm assuming, is just a, a very literal translation of whatever was said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got <laughs> to love that line. Yeah, it's Time great. rapidly goes by. But nevertheless, we're introduced also to the professor's daughter, Sylvia. Later in the film is actually referred to once as Cynthia. Okay, I, I wondered yeah, about that. I noticed yeah, that too. Yeah, the rest of the time it is definitely Sylvia. Sylvia yeah. I don't. I don't. I, it's obviously some sloppy dubbing there. Yeah, right. But nevertheless, Sylvia is a, a young girl who I'm. I'm. A, I'm, a, I'm a, I would say young. I would say eighteen, nineteen, twenty, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. Daninsky notes that the last time he saw her, she was quite the quite the small little girl, and uh, as of course. As you may have already guessed, that's going to give you a creepy little yeah. feeling somewhere south of the stomach if you know what's going to occur later in the film. Uh-huh. The, the the professor starts talking to him about the, the tests I wrote you about. Talks about uh, an expedition wiped out in Kathmandu in Nepal, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously what we saw what in the pre-credit seen, sequence. Right, right. And produces something that he, he proclaims is definitely the scalp of a yeti, mm-hmm. which is what the expedition that was wiped out was apparently looking for. Right. And, of course, they appear to have found it. <laughs> yes. Violently. Not only does he produce what he claims is the scalp of a yeti, right. but also photos mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. looks like the hairy beast that Dunn ripped into the expedition in the pre-credit <laughs> sequence. So what we have here is a man who claims he has definite proof of a yeti, mm-hmm. scalp, and very clear black and white photos, mm-hmm. and yet needs more proof. What's he, what's he plan to do? I mean, is he going out there with a big cage and a dart gun? Let's yeah. nail this sucker to the wall. I no. want to hide. I, well, yeah, I, I have no idea. Anyway, here we have uh, what I think of as one of the great lines in the opening section of the film where the professor explains to Valdemar why he wants him along for this trip. There are many reasons why I wish you to form a part of this expedition. You're an anthropologist and a psychologist. And besides, you know Tibet and you speak Nepalese. You know you can count on me, Professor. Wonderful. I'm hoping that within 15 days, our expedition will be in Kathmandu. From here, we immediately jump to Nepal. We go right there. No no planes flying or anything like that. We're right there. With uh, Valdemar arriving sometime after the rest of the expedition, Mm -hmm. with uh, a Sherpa in tow, 
Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we're brought up to date that there's a uh, been there's a lot of bad weather, and apparently the troop just feels that they're not going to be going anywhere for some time, for several months, because the bad weather has shut down the the standard passage into the Himalayas that they want to go to. Valdemar steps right in and says, there has to be a way. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, he says exactly that. There has to be a way. Mm-hmm. And we're going to find it and we're going to go through. And they immediately set up the guy who's obviously the exact polar opposite of, of Valdemar, the guy who's really kind of content to stay at the lodge there and, you know, just uh, enjoy the local uh, the pleasures. Uh, this is the fellow who uh, is called Norman, and you sort of instantly set him up as the cowardly jerk as opposed to Valdemar who's ready to just, you know, rush in and wants to, wants to get moving. Exactly. Well, Valdemar, he don't uh, see eye to eye, and it's very clear. There's also the professor, just to set up the group here. Now, in addition to Waldemar and Norman, there's Professor Lacombe here, of course. Uh, Sylvia's come along. There's another uh, girl named Melody, um, probably just to be another girl. On the, <laughs> you know, a little just, more eye just candy. A, just another attractive piece yeah. of eye candy. For uh, there's a fellow uh, with glasses named Ralph. Uh, who seems seems like kind of a general okay guy, you know, good guy, whatever. And then there's the the clean cut guy who has a very interesting name that we yeah, picked yeah, up we, on. This fellow's name is Larry. Mm-hmm. Now his his name he will occasionally be referred to by his last name, which is Talbot, yeah. which means that his name is Larry yeah. Talbot. Yeah. Which, if you know anything mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the Universal horror films, you will know that Larry Talbot or Lawrence Talbot. As the Wolfman, mm-hmm. and it's it's it is very interesting because again, like we talked about, since we don't have the subtitle ver- or they don't have the original language version, we don't know if this was in the original script or if it was a choice of the dubbers. But it's interesting that he, they never actually call him Larry Talbot in one. They always either refer to him as Larry or Talbot. But you start to piece it together, and it's actually kind of a neat, nice little uh, little touch there. Even though if you were if you were to think that this might mean that he's going to become a lycanthrope, that is not what right. And maybe maybe happened, yeah, but. maybe it's supposed to throw that. Uh, uh, of course, anyone who's seen any Paul Nash's films by this time has no doubt who's going to become the werewolf. But maybe yeah. maybe for audiences <laughs> who didn't know, maybe it was meant to kind of be a little bit of misdirection there, possibly. Uh, yeah, or maybe there were going to be two of them. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Daninsky says, "Hey, we're going to do it. We're going to find a way," mm-hmm. and goes uh, sets off to find uh, someone who can get them and find them a way to get to where they need to be. Uh, his uh, his Sherpa guide or his uh, they also his call guide. him Tiger and they and they refer yeah, to they call Tiger guy Tiger so we'll just go, that's the Sherpa says guy. he says he knows a guy who can probably help them out his name is Joel and they go and find him where he knows he'll be located which is in an opium den. Mm-hmm. Uh, here they find him, uh, talk to him, and once again we have one of those great passages of dialogue that I'm just going to uh, give credit to Nashi for, even though it's the English dubbing and therefore I'm not really sure. But uh, they find him and uh, tell him what they want to do. Joel, wake up, Joel. I have work for you. Let me alone. <coughs> Listen, Joel, you have a chance to make a lot of money, more than you ever dreamed of. You'll have to go to Karakoram. The pass of the demons of the Red Moon, eh? Well, I was sure that one day I'd return to hear its howls. I was sure. You're not afraid of those demons? Those demons. I carry them inside my body. I'll wait at the hotel. When you're conditioned, come and see me. I wanted to point out, too, that this character of Joel, uh, I don't know if you recognize the actor, but it's, it's, I just wanted to bring it up because last podcast we mentioned the movie Horror Express because of the 
make because that that movie had the same makeup. The guy that did the makeup oh, in the Horror Express, yeah. Horror Express, also did makeup in Horror Rise from the Tomb. Well, this actor who's playing Joel in this scene was in Horror Express. He was the guy who first opens who's, who who uh, Peter Cushing pays to take a sneak peek at uh, oh, yeah. okay. the relic that turns out. Of course, that turns out to be his undoing. So he's basically the first first death on the train uh, in Horror Express. And I, I never I never yeah. pass up a chance to mention that movie because I just love it so much. <laughs> you know, but, well, you know, don't don't yeah. don't feel bad for mentioning Horror Express yeah. whenever you can. But yeah, that's um, no, I I had no idea. I did not put those two together. Mm-hmm. I love the uh, and the dialogue that we just heard too. Uh, um, I, I like that line where he says he carries the demons in his body because I wonder if if that makes me wonder if that's a reference to the fact he's obviously an opium addict and it also maybe suggests that, that that's what drove him to 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 become to, to to live in the opium den is because he's trying to escape the horrors of what he experienced being what, in the red past. It's kind of a ni- n- nice little. It's it's a nice there. little thing and it's 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 a neat little a neat little piece to add to the to the uh, to the kind of bigger picture that mm-hmm. the the film tries to assemble of these adventurers in the Himalayas yeah. doing this very manly and dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a nice thing to have there but it's it's um I don't know it's just it's just another another little extra along the way it just adds color a little yeah. bit of flavor. Yeah. Either that or it's a tossed off line and we're just making And it, it could be that dude. <laughs> <laughs> but it certainly does explain what Joel does here in a little while, you know his actions once they actually get into the past. True, true. This gets very strange. So we cut to the base camp of the the expedition the new expedition right the vast major uh, the the entire uh group has been left behind at the base camp while valdemar and joel go into the mountains to find mm-hmm. the uh the pass that they spoke of the uh, katakuram right pass. that they also call the land of the demons of the red moon is what it's the pass of the demons of the red moon boy it. does that sound like an adventure uh, does, does that sound like a vacation ex- <laughs> vacation getaway it, it? it ain't disneyland <laughs> um they, they, at this point, uh, we were, we're there with the people in the base, base camp. Valdemar has been gone for days, and they're starting to get a little concerned. Uh, we see that uh, Valdemar and Joel are troop, tromping, tromping along through the snow in the mountains, and Joel kind of freaks out. Uh, yeah, they start to hear a little bit of like laughter, right? Sounding like like the voices laughing and. Uh... Uh, yeah, and he basically just takes off and, and leaves Valdemar in his de- in the in the standing in the snow. And he yeah, Joel runs off, and Valdemar runs off after him, and he reaches a spot where the footprints in the snow just stop, mm-hmm. as if like he was snatched up right out of the air, snatched right up off the ground, evaporated. Mm-hmm. Who knows what? He's mm-hmm. just gone. Mm-hmm. So, because Valdemar only has five days of food. The uh, expedition, the, the the professor and the other people decide, you know, we're going to go after him regardless because mm-hmm. the the amount of time he's been gone, he's going to end up dead if we don't go and do something. But they're going to have to find Sherpas to to do this, and this is not uh, not exactly something that they feel like is going to be easy. Right. So one of the one of the funnier things at this point is this is when we have the scene with the um, the natives, the Nepalese natives, doing this bizarre music mm-hmm. music dance right. that uh, they they describe as them uh, attempting to kind of uh, chase away chase away demons and right pre- kind of prep themselves to go into what they consider to be a dangerous place. Right. Well, we also kind of realize at this point. Uh, I think it's Talbot maybe that makes the reference to uh, the fact that. Uh, that the you know we get the point that they basically have paid these guys enough that they're yeah. going to go because they're going to make like I think he says three times the amount they'd make on a normal expedition apparently because Tiger has been telling them all along these guys are not going to go where you want them to go they're not going to go where, yeah, into this, this land of the work, demons yeah. 
apparently they've thrown enough gold at these guys enough that they're going to do it, but they're going to do this dance first. And here we come upon a line that I thought was kind of interesting. From the, the one from Norman? Yes. Who is he referring to? Do you have any idea? He has to have been, Okay, what it is is yeah, Norman, I have some ideas, Norman, but... Norman, the jerk, just yeah. offhandedly is referring to Valdemar and him not being back yet, and he just... He call he said he said he calls he calls it appears he, he calls Joel I think a is that who okay because I I know he's because at the same time he, at the same time he's talking about how he doesn't trust these guys these guides that they're going out with because he thinks yeah. they're going to rob them and it's interesting how you know he's so much of a jerk and yet some things he says actually do sort of come to pass I mean he's not a total idiot well, but I mean, yeah. uh, but even a, even a stop the clock is right twice a day. <laughs> yeah, that's right but he does say this great line about uh, we're going to have trouble because of that pothead and I, I'm sitting there yeah. thinking okay. He has to either refer to Joel, to Tiger, or to Nashi, or to Denise. Or Denise, well, right. like, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting... Who's he talking about? And the only thing that makes sense... <laughs> it it does. He, it if, makes if, Joel... If he knew that Joel was, yeah, that was, really does the was most. an opium addict, mm-hmm. well, then okay, but pothead? Yeah, and the fact that Joel was, like, way off with, I mean, he's he's not really... It's, it seems like he's referring to somebody more immediate, but but yeah. that's but you're right. That's the only thing that makes the most sense, Is but it's just kind of an odd line, once again, just it's another kind of odd bizarre. bit of dubbing that, you know... Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, was, was there no, was there no more appropriate derisive term for an opium addict? I don't understand. But anyway, uh, so we know that we, we now know Valdemar is alone up, right. in, the, up in the snowy waste, mm-hmm. probably lost. Have, we mm-hmm. we have no clue what what is what's what he's going to do. He's stumbling along through the snowy mountain passes uh, near collapse, mm-hmm. and throws off his backpack. He's mm-hmm. he's obviously on his last legs when he spots a cave entrance. Mm-hmm. That looks like it might be good shelter. As a matter of fact, he kind of hazily, it kind of almost looks like he's looking through into something that looks like a pool of water. See, I thought that too. It was real hard to hard, yeah. hard to tell at first. I thought too that it was looking at almost like a, a lake or a river or something. And the way it's shot, yeah. um, it's hard to tell what it is on first glance. But he stumbles. He stumbles into this this cave entrance. Oh, and I have back to back through I, all the caves. I have to oh. mention too. I just thought it was a nice the shot of him entering the cave is just kind of a throwaway kind of little scene, but it just. I like the the fact that because you see him in silhouette and he's wearing his his uh, hood over himself and it makes his head look slightly pointed, slightly conical. It actually looks in the silhouette almost like a Yeti's silhouette as he's coming into the, the cave. And I thought that was a nice <laughs> I little. I really uh, thought about yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind yeah, of a neat idea. It's kind of a neat scene. You're right. You're right. Um, something that hadn't occurred to me. But he he stumbles through the through the caves and uh, you know just obviously trying to find shelter and comes across a very well lit. Mm-hmm. Room there in the cave yeah. that has a large shrine, mm-hmm. and while he's looking at that, it's uh, it's got a very what appears to be a, a, a Hindu mm-hmm. um, shrine, a Hindu statue on it, and a few skulls time. laying around, which is never really a good yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah, the skulls <laughs> laying around are your first indicator that something is wrong. Yeah. Usually, before he can really kind of get a grasp of what he's looking at, this woman appears next to the shrine mm-hmm. and starts talking to him. Mm-hmm. Explains that this is sacred ground. Uh, Mulak yeah. of Kali the Black, mm-hmm. which I'm not up on my Hindu gods and, and goddesses, so I'm not. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that Kali is, right. is definitely bad news. Don't get me wrong; I've seen enough. enough. It, it seems to me like she refers to this. Uh, if, if and I was you, you got closer to me as far as what she was saying. It definitely started with an M. That's as far as I got. But you said you, you're seeing, you're hearing Mulak. I'm hearing Mulak or Moloch or something. Like but that. she's and she and she. I think she refers to him as a god that serves. Kali, which is an odd way, because Kali yeah. is a goddess, but she almost refers to this, sort of what they're worshipping and what they're regarding is, is sort of a god himself. Well, the in, the indicator I got, and then we, we'll touch on this in a few moments, is mm-hmm. that Mulak is is what's in that crypt. That's, yeah, I, that's all I figure, because that's, shrine, yeah, right? yeah, I think so too. And if Mulak serves Kali the Black, that would kind of make mm-hmm. sense. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, um, 
soon after, I mean, he, he hears what she has to say and kind of looks around and then just passes out. Mm-hmm. When he wakes up, he's obviously delirious. Uh, a good deal of time has passed. It's obvious that he's recovering from whatever, and there, and there are now two women. Right. And they're talking about him and obviously nursing him back to health, trying to mm-hmm. uh, make sure that he's okay. He's very strong. He will be a good companion and a passionate lover. When the full moon shines in the sky, our solitude will have ended forever. What happened? I must... I must have passed out. You're distressed. You have been very ill, almost to the point of death. But you have been well taken care of. You must take this. It will do you good. Back with the expedition, their big worry appears to be uh, bandits. Mm-hmm. Tiger keeps emphasizing that there's ba- that there are bandits around, that they're big trouble, and that if they're captured by certain bandits, mm-hmm. then they'll be dragged back to Shaka Khan's yeah. palace and tortured. Mm-hmm. By and, the way, it's 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 actually Shaka Khan, but it sounds amazingly close to Shaka Khan. Well, it's, and, it's, and it's they may Saka, even say it's like yeah. Saka or... It's, it's Saka Khan? Yeah. And, which is... Yeah, I, I never... If, if I said Shaka Khan... Well, but it's... Me. But honestly, the first time they said it, I thought too, and I'm glad it wasn't because I don't think my sanity could have uh, <laughs> could have handled that. But uh, you know, if, if this were Mystery Science Theater, every time we appear, we'd have to say Shaka Khan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we'd have to... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely... It's it's Saka Khan, and he, his, his big worry, you know, these bandits are bad news. If they don't kill you, they'll drag you back to, to the Khan's palace and... and torture you and you'll believe me you'll want to be dead right while uh valdemar uh, wakes up in the cave with the two sisters and it's very obvious now that we're watching the clothed version of this mm, film. i believe so yeah i could not get my hands on the version with nudity uh, as we've discussed in, po- in previous podcasts these films were shot with both an export and uh, a uh Spanish version uh, the, the version to be shown in Spain all the women are generally clothed or at least have some kind of diaphanous mm-hmm. cloth over their nudity mm-hmm. and the same exact scenes were shot with full on balls out nudity mm-hmm. for export that's what the rest of the co- the rest of the countries would get unfortunately i can't get my i can get my hands on the the nudity filled version of this film mm-hmm. so this is what we got right but I think these, uh, and it's pretty obvious in these scenes where Daninsky is delirious and in a fever. That while he's going through this, the women are sort of enjoying the the pleasures of his his body. And I'm sitting there thinking that you know, it, I'm watching. I'm thinking, you know, only Paul Nashy can can be like semi conscious and still score with two women. You know, <laughs> <laughs> two apparently apparently sisters as yeah, well. Yeah, right, right. So, so what we're dealing with at this point is him kind of drifting in and out of consciousness, recovering, mm-hmm. and these two women very obviously taking advantage of his, you know, mm-hmm. ma- you know his, his mighty Daninsky body. <laughs> but, you know, was it all a dream? Yes, he, yes, he's, yes. He, he definitely is not sure. Right, I mean, right, there, yeah, There's a yeah. question in his mind. He's not mm-hmm. sure if he's just being delirious or not. Right. So uh, he eventually snaps out of this, wakes mm-hmm. up alone. He's, he's mm-hmm. just there in the cave, you know, wrapped in furs, gets himself dressed, and this I find amusing because... I refer to him from here on out as the man in black because he spends the rest of the film yeah, he does. in it's this a, outfit. Uh-huh. And it's black pants, look like yeah. almost look like jeans or black yeah. jeans, but I'm, I, mm. I don't think they are. They're probably canvas of some sort. And a black mm-hmm. uh, button-up shirt. Of course, it's a button-up shirt so that we can get a look at his chest every now and then. <laughs> uh, 
but you know that's that's just the way it's got to <laughs> yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know where this clothing came from. Yeah, I know, me either. Because he long since dropped yeah, yeah. his backpack, right, so there's right. no way he walked in with this clothing. <laughs> yeah. But then again, at the same time, is this just clothing mm. left around from previous victims? Is Johnny Cash one of the demons that haunts the, hey, the past? He, <laughs> he, he could well be. <laughs> uh, from here on in, we have the man in black. He sees the uh, the sisters, these two these two mm. women who've been taking mm. care of him, crouching in a in a little cavern off to the side, mm-hmm. eating human flesh. Yeah, it's they're, very obvious. They're, they're kind of it, kind of fighting like dogs over this over this uh, this arm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, other pieces of gory mm. human flesh. And we don't know. Now, the question is, is it Joel? Uh, we don't know that, uh, right, which I think is kind of nice. Uh, I mean, it's, <clears throat> you know, you can kind of say, well, okay, maybe likely it is, but since we never really know, uh, you, we don't really even know for sure if it's these women who took Joel in the first place, because I kind of like this. I think it's kind of neat, this whole idea of this this whole area just being a haunted region because, you know, in addition, you've got the Yeti. Don't forget the Yeti. I, we promise he will, <laughs> he really, he will show up. He will. But you got then you got these, these, these werewolf women, but we don't really even know if that's what got Joel. Like, so it's kind of neat that they sort of set this whole idea of this whole region just being haunted by various demons. And, and that may be him well, that they're eating. It may not be. That's one of the things that I find, I find kind of interesting in a strange way is that you refer to them as werewolf women, and even he does right. in that little bit from his biography. But at the same time, we never see them transform. That's true. They never really become full on. Certainly not in the way that that, that the werewolf that later appears is. Right. I mean, it's yeah. To 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 a way to, in a way I think of them as kind of demons that yeah. he's having to yeah. deal with, and who essentially curse him. Mm-hmm. At, That's in, a good. In, yeah. In this sequence that we're talking yeah. about, because we don't see them transform into anything that you would think of as a werewolf. No. No. At any rate, he he sees them eating human flesh and knows, oh, this is this is <laughs> definitely not good. He decides to try to get out of the place. Right. Goes and finds that the entrance is now barred. Right. Locked very, by iron very bars. Large iron bars. Can't get out. Goes back trying to figure some way out of this. Got to find a way out of here somewhere. These women are going to eat me and mm-hmm. not in the good way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and finds them in uh, what I refer to as the, the Crypt of the Beast. It's, mm-hmm. uh, they're crouching one on either side of this stone coffin, mm-hmm. right. stone sepulcher. With a uh, of, of the ancient variety with a the, the carved figure on the top of it, which looks like some kind of demon beast of some sort. Once again, right. in a uh, in a Hindu fa- in a Hindu <clears throat> style, right? And um, with a with a, a an arrow, a, a yeah, an arrow, arrow that's coming, yes, yeah, arrow in stuck it. in it. And uh, he he panics, reaches forward, pulls arrow out of the. Uh, the statue thing on top of the crypt and uh, attacks one of the women as she, well, she attacks him and he, he attacks back and stabs her through the chest and she falls on the floor, rises around and deteriorates into a kind of rotting skeleton. Yeah. Oh, and I want to say too, it's a, it's interesting. Our, our horror or movie up, our programming for these films, because I don't know if you had this reaction, but the minute he jumped out and pulled the arrow out, my first thought is, that's not a good idea. Yeah, that's not a good you idea. You don't pull a, you know, we, you know, you just know you don't pull an arrow out of something that's supernatural or a stake or, you know, I mean, instantly I thought, oh, something's going to, it doesn't. It turns out that it was just an arrow in a, in a statue, in a cow. Yeah, he used it as a weapon and, and, but it's just funny how, uh, how you, you instantly were, were so, you know, years and years of watching these films have you thinking in a certain way. I, I thought exactly the same thing. I was like, oh, that, oh, that, that, that can't be good. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to do that because you don't got the too crazy woman. Now yeah, you really have the stone thing pop up, whack you in the head. So I, I don't know. 
never, <laughs> nevertheless, that's not what occurs. He right. he he stabs the, the 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 woman nearest him, who's who comes at him, attacking him, destroys her. The second one now shows the only evidence of any transformational power right. that we see from either of these two women. Mm-hmm. when she sprouts these rather large teeth and fangs mm-hmm. and comes at him herself. Now, I have to admit, their sheer gowns did transform me, uh, but yes. that's, you know, in another yes, matter. Another, you know. <laughs> once, again, once again, that's the reason I would love to see the, the unclothed version yeah, of this film, because yeah. if both of these women were doing all this attacking of him mm-hmm. totally nude, which yeah. is what I'm assuming, mm-hmm. that would have been a sight, because even <laughs> through that diaphanous robe, that was some you know, yeah. some flesh-raising material there anyway. Yeah. The, sec- the, sec- the second sister attacks him, mm-hmm. And uh, manages to bite him on the chest. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought it was, she was biting him on the neck, but it definitely got him on the chest. Because after he manages to kill her mm-hmm. with the the self same arrow, right? Uh, she falls down and deteriorates. We see that the 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 large bite like wound on his chest, which appears to be five sided. Mm-hmm. The the yeah, we know that we do know that 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 famous that that recognizable wound there. The, what the, that means? The recognizable wound. So he's done away with both of them. And uh, has now been bitten. I love the fact that after we see the the bite wound on his chest, it's at this point that Daninsky then buttons up his mm-hmm. his black shirt mm-hmm. and stumbles out, <laughs> finds a finds another route out of the cave system and mm-hmm. out into the snow. Mm-hmm. Stumbles out there, and of course, soon enough, night falls, and we have the full moon, mm-hmm. and we have our first transformation. This mm-hmm. is about the thirty minute mark of the film. And it's our first werewolf transformation, and it's your standard uh, Nashy lap dissolve werewolf mm-hmm. transformation. Mm-hmm. And he goes darting off into the into the wastes, and we are then shown a group of bandits sitting around a fire. Night has fallen. Mm-hmm. They're talking about their plans and what they're going to be doing, and mm-hmm. we have our first werewolf attack. Daninsky mm-hmm. lays into this group of bandits mm-hmm. pretty heavily yeah. and slaughters them pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty effective scene. It is. Uh, he it starts is. off upon a large rock. Yeah, uh, and I love the way that that he appears that because you're kind of your attention is drawn away. They're hearing the the bandits are hearing his howls and they're all looking off because the howls are coming from outside that area. There seems to be that's where they're looking and that's where in the scene, even though you see the big rock, kind of your attention is out to to where they're looking. And so then the way he comes looming up over that rock above their heads, it's a nice bit of misdirection there that I think is very effective. It, it is very effective, and I think the the, the scene is, is very well done. It Although is. I did have one little problem, which is mm. that um, the the horses, their horses don't seem to have any problem with Danitsky <laughs> at all. And yeah. I would have expected a more realistic thing to mm-hmm. be him him frightening the living hell out of these these poor beasts. Yeah, having at least them running off or something. But yeah, it's interesting. He kind of pushes past them to get to the uh, uh, to get to the bandits, you know, to get to the humans. Uh, but he doesn't really have much interest in the horses at all. And uh, nor do they seem to really have that much interest in him. So no, yeah, it was no, a, it yeah, was that could have been more effective. But the physical stuff between there's some great. I want to say right now, there's some great stunt work in this film, and some of the best, like just as far as just bodies throwing them, leaping off of high, you know, I mean, there's some really dynamic action, some really great, great stunt. There's some, there's some the, real the athleticism here. Yeah. Uh, he, Nashy did a, a fair amount of what's on screen himself, but whoever mm-hmm. his stuntman was really went out of his mm-hmm. way to do yeah. some very, very nice, uh, very nice physical stuff. Mm-hmm. From here, the, the film cuts to uh, Sylvia being worried about Valdemar. They're in, uh, they've set up camp for the night. The expedition has set up camp for the night. Mm-hmm. And she's, uh, she's quite worried about Valdemar. She's talking with Melody. She decides, Sylvia decides to go for a walk 
in the moonlight, which is probably never a really good idea. <laughs> no. And especially not a really good idea considering that she's in camp with a drunken Norman who mm-hmm. st- stumbles out and starts talking to her and actually puts uh, some pretty uh, nasty older guy moves on her beneath right. the tree. Yeah. She gets him uh, gets him away from uh, get, she gets away from him mm-hmm. I love the line he has at that point he says uh, she, you're you're pining away for someone deader than my grandfather yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Norman's a piece of work all right Nor- Norman, real likable guy. guy yeah we don't know that he's dead anyways he's 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 beautiful so Sylvia goes off goes off in the night presumably back to the camp and uh Wow! Guess who shows up? That would be <laughs> that would be the werewolf. Yes, mm. indeed. Daninsky shows up uh, and rips Norman's throat mm-hmm. right out. Mm-hmm. Pretty nice, pretty nice little scene there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mm-hmm. love a good werewolf throat rip, and this is this is a fun one. The next day, when the, uh, the and couldn't of, happen to a nicer guy. Oh, yeah, too. couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> the next day, when they they find his body, when the expedition finds his body laying there, mm-hmm. they they're they're concerned. I mean, is this a yeti? Is that what did this? Uh, we don't know. Well, man, we're going to have mm-hmm. to bury him. We've mm-hmm. got to go on. We've got to bury him and move on. But when they get back, their camp has been destroyed, and it and it's very obvious mm-hmm. from, uh, well, they're, they're told by Tiger, who's been stabbed, mm-hmm. that the men, this was the last straw for his men. They're not going any further, so they took all, they took what they could get their hands on, destroyed the camp, mm-hmm. killed him, and left. Mm-hmm. And, and very uh, noble of Tiger not to say, you see, I, I told you I told this kind you. of stuff was going to happen. <laughs> So the professor and uh, everyone else decides, okay, we're going to have to return back to the base camp. We're not going to be able to go on without uh, without guides mm-hmm. and, without, and certainly not without supplies. But uh, as they are uh, trekking back to the base camp, they are attacked by a full retinue of the bandits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big shootout. Right. Big shootout. A very, a very nice little, little gun battle here with the bandits being very smart and having started this battle with them having the high ground. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, se- se- several members are shot. Yeah, Ralph is pretty much killed there. Ralph you know, he killed, he was he yeah. he could have gotten away with Sylvia, but but Melody gets shot in the leg, and Ralph comes back for her, and pays for his nobility by uh, getting getting shot dead. And and but Sylvia does get away. Melody is wounded in the leg, and then uh, all we're left with then is uh, Professor Lacombe and and uh, and Larry Talbot uh, put up as good <laughs> a fight uh, until they basically run out of bullets and have to surrender. So um, they they grab the professor. The bandits come down and say, "Okay, you are a you are known as a wise man. So we're going to take you back to Saka Khan." Mm, to the professor, right? They look at Larry mm. and say, "You are, you are not a wise man. So you will amuse us." <laughs> and I don't want to know what that means. Well, we find these out are, what that means, but I'll tell you right then. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, these are lonely guys, lonely bandits in the mountains. It's like, I really don't want to know what what what's in store for Larry there. What but. happens in the Himalayan mountains stays <laughs> in the Himalayan mountains. No, um, there, there. We are left with our, our next, our next sequence, which mm. is uh, what I've just referred to as a bad day for night shot. No, see, that's why I was talking yeah. about the early part of the film. Is that, or when I, excuse me, the early part of our cast here was, it was I wanted to talk about this scene here yeah. because, yeah, this is this is not even attempted day for night. We think this is supposed to. We, I thought it was day, you know. It, but then, as soon as you see, I mean, once you see. Daninsky in mm. full werewolf form, yeah. you know. Okay, wait a minute. This is supposed to be night. Yeah. So yeah, I thought we were we were in the daytime as well until that mm. shows up. But what it is is we have the werewolf stalking around uh, near this stream. Sylvia is uh, in full in full you know runaway mode, mm-hmm. but is uh, tracked down and attacked by mm. a couple of the bandits who've been sent to find her. And uh, as she tries to escape, she's not having much luck and. The werewolf attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and actually at this point, because I thought it was day, what I really thought was going to happen, I was expecting 
Daninsky to show up and fight them off because we've seen that scene occurs in a lot of and similar in several Nashi films uh, yeah. where he saves the woman from potential rape by beating up you know as his human self you know and this is because I thought it was day I was expecting Daninsky to show up suddenly the werewolf shows up and you realize oh this is actually still this is actually night <laughs> even though it's bright and sunny yeah they, they, they obviously needed to throw I mean a good transfer of this film would throw a uh, a darkening filter over the right. scene so that right. we, would, we would know we're, what we're what we're supposed to be seeing here is a nighttime shot. Right. But nevertheless, the attack is pretty effective. It is very nice. He, again, he, very well edited. He, very well done. He rips into these guys, and they they uh, one of them actually pumps a couple of bullets into his stomach, which has mm. absolutely no mm. effect. Mm-hmm. And later on, it also doesn't have any holes in his black shirt. Oh, well, you know. The point. <laughs> continuity there, it was but, a supernatural uh, black shirt, you know. That's right. He got it out of the supernatural cave. It it's supernatural see. fabric, and it just, you know. Suddenly it makes sense. <laughs> it's one of them, yeah. them space-age fibers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he tears into the bandits, kills them all, takes a few bullets, all to no effect. Uh, but, of course, and then stands there, and Sylvia is just terrified, backed up against mm-hmm. the tree, staring at this thing with mm-hmm. blood all over it who's just ripped into these guys he stares at her and then lopes away mm-hmm. leaving her to just and pass out on the ground good bit of acting uh, from nashi through the makeup too you know as a, his expressions as a werewolf and his kind of confusion he conveys that very well as you know is yeah. not you know not you know knowing that he's something level of him is recognizing this person and, and makes him leave but yeah a good bit of acting there nicely done well he when he wakes up the next morning of course, it's still looking like the same kind of shot that we saw. Anyway, <laughs> right. he wakes up the next morning and uh, sees the the carnage left behind, the bodies. Um, finds Sylvia. Mm-hmm. She wakes up, looking around and getting a look at this all in the daytime as well. And this is the point, by the way, in the dubbing in the English dub where he refers to her as Cynthia. Oh, okay. That's, yeah. Is that what he calls her when yeah. they meet? Is that does he kind of, okay? Very strange, but I mean Sylvia throughout the rest of the yeah. film. But here, for oh. some reason, I just think the English dubbers. Yeah, it was, I think it was a bit of it. Yeah, so. I think so. Uh, she tells uh, Valdemar about the the bandit ambush mm-hmm. and how she got away, and she doesn't have any idea of what happened what's to happened the rest right, of right. And so he's he he says, okay, well we're gonna have to go see what what's what's left, see who survived or what happened or what we can find out. And so they go back to the place where the ambush happened the day before. And they find, they find Larry, who has apparently amused the bandits. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's amused them all right. Um, they find him st- in, staked in, to the ground, and I don't mean staked. Well, well let's as just say impaled. impaled. <laughs> as yeah. impaled, yeah. Standing upright with a spike through his body. Yeah. And uh, this Ouch. is not this is not particularly graphic uh, as it's shown, but you get the idea. Yeah. And he's still alive. Daninsky walks up to him. And realizes he's still alive, starts asking him what he knows. He gets no real information out of the guy, as he just begs for death. Mm-hmm. Um, now, well, actually, no, no, no. He does say that um, he gives him. Yeah, he, he says the Melanie and the professor have been taken to to Sakakon's palace. palace, palace right. right, and uh, and yeah, and you're right. He begs Daninsky to kill him. And it's interesting, but he dies. Sort of, he Daninsky doesn't have to end up making that that choice. It, it, and well, now, it would, here's my question. Yeah, uh, the film. This is this scene is done in close up between yeah, the two of it them, is. Uh, alternating shots of close ups between Nashi and the actor playing Larry. Oh, are you thinking that we maybe there was well, an alternate? I'm wondering if it was shot with him doing something to ease his, ease him along because it's mm. otherwise it's a little con, a little convenient for him to die right then because he doesn't force the character to make that choice to have to face that you know and. Uh... Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's shot, it could it could it could easily have been edited to do either one. You right. know, there could but there may be a version out there that actually shows him uh, ki- taking some ki- action, action to, to go to, ahead and to put him out of his, his misery. Yeah, 
I don't thought know, of that. I don't know. Point. There may not be that. Maybe yeah, it may be that way from the get go. They may have decided to to never edit it that way. Mm. But I have the suspicion that the original intent may have been to mm. have him mm. essentially mercy kill mm. Larry. So anyway, now we are introduced. We get. I think this is our first vision of Saka Khan in it his is. palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has what I would refer to as a really bad skin rash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some hard, hard sores going on. Some, some bad stuff going some on on his back. Bad sores. I don't know what the. I don't know what's been biting this guy. But <laughs> it weren't pleasant. No. He is being treated for these, uh, these bad sores by what can only be referred to as an evil foreign woman. He's mm-hmm. referred to that as. Mm-hmm. Her name is uh, Vandessa. Vandessa. And. And that's an evil foreign name, if ever I heard it. Yeah, yeah. They never get any more specific than. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evil foreign woman. We never <laughs> they never nailed down anything else. This is this this role is is played by uh, Sylvia Solar, right? A uh, gorgeous actress who um very, very she's got a Betty Page haircut in this very <laughs> yeah, black yeah. very 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 black hair dresses she, dresses she, in black shops at the same uh, shops at the same boutique as as, as Nashi does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently so. You're right. Um, she was in a number of films that I've that I've seen. Oh, really? Uh, uh, no, but she was in uh, The Devil's Kiss. Uh, she was in uh, Ernesto's Ernesto Gastaldi's excellent uh, Giallo called Eyeball, hmm. which is which is a really good film. She was with uh, she was in Crimson, the crime film with Nash. Oh, you were telling me about that uh, one, yeah. a year a year later. Mm-hmm. Cannibal Terror in 1981. Hmm. That would be I is Cannibal Terror. I think is the uh, no, it's not the Jess Franco film. It's something else. But nevertheless, uh, she did. Hmm. She her her career continued until about 1988. So uh, she worked. She worked a, a good long while before that as well. She was in a couple of the Jerry Cotton films in the 60s. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, very interesting. No kidding. Very so cool. She uh, she's a very attractive woman. Yes, indeed. Uh, Full figured, voluptuous, and mm-hmm. uh, got a dangerous look to her. I, yeah. I like I like her look. Mm-hmm. But uh, she plays Mendessa. Who we really don't have a whole lot of information about, just from mm-hmm. the, the from the film itself. It, it it puts her out there. She is obviously uh, has worked. She's obviously worked her way into Saka Khan's good graces mm-hmm. to to treat him for whatever this ailment is that he has. And I kind of got the impression that if that ailment hadn't existed, she might have uh, helped it along or created it one way or another, just to yeah. <laughs> cement her place inside his yeah. palace. Mm-hmm. Well, considering what some of her treatments are for it, uh, they're they're not they're not yeah. designed to heal. <laughs> that's you know that's for sure. Yeah, I don't know what they're designed to do. <laughs> but but nevertheless, we're introduced to Saka Khan and Vendessa, mm-hmm. while Daninsky and Sylvia stumbling you know stumbling around, trying to find their way to the palace, run across a uh, a house that they think they can take refuge in. Right. And uh, therein resides uh, an older Tibetan man that. Well, and also his, and then his, I guess his, oh, his, his mute, his mute, uh, whatever it is, servant, friend, servant or buddy, son, buddy, who, who never, who, we, who do we ever really see again? Oh, yeah. Well, only, well, first of all, first of all, we first see him because he comes out of, he's the first person we see at this cottage or this house yeah. of fun because he attacks, we think that he's attacking Sylvia and, and Waldemar comes to her rescue and throws some haymakers at him, you know, yeah, and all, but, but finally the old man comes out and says, no, he's harmless. He's just a mute, you know, he's, he's, yeah. and, and so he doesn't mean any harm. And, and, and yes, well, we do see him again, uh, really basically one more time, but we'll get to that. You go, you can go ahead and, and, and start. Oh, well, that's just that at that point, um, Sylvia has a uh, passed on the ground out of, out of sheer fright or terror. The, the old man shows up, explains that the mute's really not dangerous at all. Mm-hmm. 
just an incredibly big mutant. Just a big guy. <laughs> so, uh, and says, hey, let's, you know, we, we'll have to carry Sylvia to the, to the nearby monastery where we mm. can where we can uh, mm-hmm. let her recuperate. Mm-hmm. There, uh, he fills in Valdemar about uh, Saka Khan, his mm-hmm. palace, mm-hmm. and the, the evil foreign woman right, who's, right. who's there with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I, lo- I love this line he has: uh, "Her evil powers and abominations." He's describing her, and he something about her evil powers her, and, and abominations, abominations. Uh, which is which is very interesting at that point because we don't know what the heck is going on. Right. Also explains that he realizes just from looking at him that Valdemar has definitely been mm. cursed; mm. that he has mm. met up with those demons mm. and has been cursed. Mm-hmm. And it also says, I, I, only I know of a remedy for your condition. And he describes this plant that has a red flower mm. that, uh, when, when mixed with the blood of a young girl, can reverse this curse, can lift this curse from him. Now, when he says blood of a young girl, mm-hmm. the thought that ran through my head was, does he mean virgin? Yeah, right. Because that's always seemed to me to be the... The, the thing that you come back to again and again with these types of things is the blood of a virgin has some kind of specific power, some some, mm-hmm. some ability to work some mystic magic. Mm-hmm. and uh, But that's not spelled out. And I'm wondering right. if it was spelled out further in yeah. other languages. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I think it's a strong possibility. Right, and also uh, I would imagine that probably the, a certain Universal film popped into both our heads when he starts talking about this magical flower. Precisely. Which is the second... I believe I'm, I think I'm right that we referenced this film uh, uh, back in in our first cast with with uh, Mark of the Wolfman. Uh, I believe we mentioned uh, which makes two the two films now to reference obviously Werewolf of London. Right, and this is a very strong wor- reference to Werewolf of London. Uh, what it is in Werewolf of London, if you've never seen the film, right? The uh, and if you haven't, what's wrong with you? <laughs> if you haven't, get on the stick. Mm-hmm. No, uh, in Werewolf of London, the one thing that can stave off. The transfer, uh, transformation into a werewolf once you've been infected or cursed is the, uh, the kind of the juice out of this particular flower that blooms right. uh, under the under moonlight, not mm. under sunlight, but under moonlight. Mm. And I I hate to say this, but I forget the name of the plant right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm blanking on it too. But this uh, this is slightly different, but it's an obvious reference to mm-hmm. Werewolf of London. Mm-hmm. So we know now that we need to seek the magic plant, mm-hmm. which. Uh, Makes me think of the opium den again anyway. But nevertheless, yeah. <laughs> what we have next is uh, the monk agreeing to help out Valdemar. And that night, with the rise of the full moon again, he chains him to a tree. Mm-hmm. Good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good idea. Uh, doesn't uh, doesn't really work out. But Sylvia sees this, and so mm-hmm. now she sees him transform while he's chained to the tree. Mm-hmm. And now knows his secret. So Valdemar busts those chains and goes running off into the night. Of course, not going anywhere near Sylvia, of course. Right. Kills, uh, attacks and kills a man on horseback mm-hmm. who will turn out to be yeah, one, one of Saka Khan's like, uh, bandits, right, right. emissaries. Yeah. It's at this point that um, the monk takes Sylvia into, into his confidence, tells her what mm-hmm. he told Valdemar about this flower, mm-hmm. and gives her a, a silver dagger, a little silver knife. Mm-hmm. And says that you know explains that the knife has to with this knife under the under a full moon you have to pierce this flower and mix it with your blood. Mm-hmm. This is this can release him from this curse. This will mm-hmm. this will cure him essentially of. They never refer to it as lycanthropy. They never even refer to it. it's just a it's curse. True. Right, right. Which refers back to the the original title of the film, The Curse of the Beast. Yeah, yeah. So 
Vandessa, back in the palace, mm-hmm. really wants the professor dead. Because the professor is a threat to her because he mm-hmm. might be able to find some he way to actually... cure this god-awful rash. Mm-hmm. He might be able to, you know, might have a little Neosporin or something on him, you know. <laughs> a little Mercuricomb. <It's> like... <laughs> might know which plants to put on it. Yeah, exactly. To, to clear that up. But uh, Saka Khan's having no... Um, he's, not, he's not agreeing with this idea yeah. because he kind of wants to keep his options open. And uh, they hear about these two that have been wandering around, which we know of, of course, are Sylvia and uh, Daninsky. Right. And Saka Khan sends out some men to get them. But when Vendetta, and this is very interesting, I like this, this is nice, a nice little subtle piece when uh, someone tells Saka Khan while uh, he's sitting there with Vandessa about this uh, emissary of his who was killed, and it mm-hmm. looks like he was killed by wolves. Right. Vandessa gets this look on her face, which yeah. makes you think that this might be part of the reason she's been hanging out in this area of mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. She seems uh, very interested in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saka Khan's uh, men go and capture Sylvia and Valdemar during the day. Yeah. Um, As a matter of fact, they kill. They kill the monk. And and that's where and that's him. where you actually do see uh, because it's it's yeah it's a pretty brutal little scene because it's totally unexpected because we see Sylvia I think she wakes up and looks and there's the head of the monk severed head of the monk uh, Just laying there, and laying yeah. there and then uh, uh, of course the bandits that set upon him and that's when we see uh, that the mute they've also killed. Uh, his his mute friend. Uh, we get a glimpse of of him there, right. there, there, Ted too. So that's the only other time he pops up. But we do see that he's been killed. So they drag Sylvia and uh, Valdemar back to mm-hmm. uh, the palace, chain Valdemar up mm-hmm. uh, up against the wall right next to the professor. Mm-hmm. The professor explains that for the first few days he was here, they kind of gave him a run of the place. He mm-hmm. wasn't able to leave, mm-hmm. but uh, just recently they got a little bit more rough with him and chained his butt to a wall. Well, and and the reason why is I don't know if you. Remember this scene uh, where basically the reason Wandessa uh, uh, is playing chess with Saka Khan. Yeah. yeah, she's trying to find a way to get uh, Saka Khan <laughs> to kill the professor. <laughs> and basically she bet him, apparently has bet him a game of chess that if she wins, uh, that she can go ahead and kill the professor. And Saka Khan agrees to this. And this all kind of points out the fact to me that Saka Khan is not really that smart a guy, you know, because he's <laughs> he's kind of, he seems at first kind of in sharp when he's like, you know, no, I think I'm going to keep this wise man alive because he may actually be able to help me more than you. But then he agrees to a game of chess to just totally let him go. Uh, and because he loses, then basically Vandessa gets to do what she wants to the professor. So, yeah, not a real smart move on the cons part there. <laughs> yeah, one what, what has to wonder if, the con is just kind of picking his battles and picking them poorly at times. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. But uh, so well, when we've all got when we've got gaping sores on our back, we all tend to make bad bad hey, decisions. Hey. Sometimes it's a distraction. <laughs> under, under the threat of disease and more disease, I guess we all do make strange choices. But uh, we have uh, Valdemar chained to the wall, and uh, Vandessa comes in and starts uh, starts talking to him. Has the professor dragged away? Mm-hmm. And we have what I would refer to as a sequence. I would just call, say, oh, I don't know, the seduction of Valdemar. Yep. Where yep. she starts talking to him, and kind of uh, kissing around on him. And hey, when you look mm-hmm. at this woman, it's no, it's 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 no problem really to understand mm-hmm. why he kind of uh, smooches on her back. Yeah. Well, not on her back, but anyway, he kisses <laughs> her back. Yeah. That's when. Uh, that's when things get interesting. We saw the body of the messenger. And he wasn't killed by a wolf. It was you. As of now, all your powers of destruction, your strength are mine, do you hear? 
you will obey me. As a man and as a beast. And no one will oppose me. Understand? I'll never obey you. I know how to destroy you. And I will do it when I wish. <clears throat> but that is what you want, isn't it? Liberation from your curse. I'll not do it. I have other methods to get to you. As a man, don't forget that the woman you love is in my power. As a beast, my science. Virtue into my slave. Of course, Valdemar has no desire to go along with her wishes here. And right, right. She figures he'll come around eventually, walks on out of the place, and goes about her business. And of course, her business is... Torturing female prisoners. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, but... Uh, that old, another old staple of the, <laughs> the Euro horror Euro, Euro horror films is the good old, you know, tor- torturing women. Torturing women. Yeah, she has a... Uh, a uh, a bevy of captured females mm. that uh, she she doesn't torture for no reason. It's not like That's she's right. just a sadist, right. although she's described as a sadist. Right. Uh, she is using these women to affect her supposed cure <clears throat> of the mm. rather bad rash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so next we see her go into the pen where she's got, or the jail cell, mm-hmm. where she's got these, uh, these women all penned up, select two or three of them out. And one of the ones she selects is is Melody, the girl who who was taken, who was captured uh, from uh, Daninsky's expedition. Correct. And uh, it is at this point we are introduced to a character. We're at the one hour mark in this film. Yeah, yeah. And one of the women pinned up inside the uh, the women's prison there. Mm-hmm. Now is it was it Olga or Olka? Olka. I got Olka, Princess Olka. of Shakreen. Princess of Shakreen, correct. Easily recognizable because whereas everybody else is dressed in brown rags, uh, she's dressed in resplendent green kind of princess wear or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. She looks like she just stepped out of Aladdin or something. I don't mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is very forward and speaks her mind to her mm-hmm. her, her captors mm-hmm. very effectively and uh, lets it be known that she uh, is not happy about all these about this situation and wants to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Well, this, uh, this is our introduction to a character who... Much against what I've always said about yes. women in Nash's uh, Yes, she, she is an anomaly, to say the least. Uh, oh, definitely. This is an anomaly. This is the kind of anomaly that stands out like a sore thumb. This mm-hmm. woman is going to be a hero of the last third of the film. Yeah. She stands up to the evil foreign woman, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> with, tells her exactly what's on her mind, and mm-hmm. I'm surprised that she wasn't just killed on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets bitch slapped. but She does a... get bitch slapped, yes. Vandessa yeah. puts the slap on her, but uh, but that doesn't really cow Olka too much. You know, she's no, uh, no, no. she she's, basically tells her, "You're going to be sorry that you're you threw me, captured me." So. Yeah, you're going to be sorry about this situation, bitch. Let me tell you. <laughs> and the word "bitch" does get tossed around a few times yeah, here, especially yeah, in, the, yeah. in the in the final scene with mm-hmm. uh, with, with mm-hmm. Vandessa. So um, we have right here an honest to god female hero mm-hmm. who, and I find this amusing. Mm-hmm. Nashi's character never meets. Yes, uh, yeah, you notice that. I know, and no, it doesn't even seduce it at some point or something. And I mean, there's, there's no connection whatsoever, <laughs> and no chance for this particular character to have ever been nude either. Right, right. The three women get uh, yanked out of the pen and taken to taken to right in front of where 
they have uh, Nashi pinned up, yeah. chained to the wall. Still. And as they're bringing them there, they pass Sylvia being dragged the other way. She's being Sylvia, of course, who was captured along with Daninsky. She passes them and recognizes Melody. Of course, she's being also she's being dragged to be put into the the pen, uh, put into the cage as Melody is being taken to uh, this basic torture chamber that's set up here in front of uh, where Daninsky's chained to the wall. Correct. So we we follow the three girls and Vandessa as they go to the uh, the holding cell where. Daninsky is chained up. They tie up the three women, strip them down so that their backs are facing outwards. And here we do have a little bit of nudity, even for the clothed version. That's true. There's a, there's yeah, a there little is. bit of nudity here. And we witness, and she obviously wants Daninsky to witness, right. her treatment mm. for Saka Khan's back ailment, his, mm. his very bad rash, which is she takes a knife and uh, cuts off a portion of the flesh from the back of one of these poor girls and then drapes it over Saka Khan's back. Now, how this is supposed to cure <laughs> anything other than, you know, aversion yeah. therapy, yeah. Uh, as an, aversion, an aversion to icky yeah. flesh yeah. being scattered across mm. your own, I don't know. Yeah. What I like about this idea is that at least, you know, okay, obviously Saka Khan is, is a big evil bastard, but I like the fact that there is something, he doesn't just, he's not just someone who's torturing women and standing by and laughing maniacally and just torturing for the hell of torturing them. In his mind, in his own mind at least, this is obviously I mean, you know, he thinks that this is this exotic cure is somehow going to win, going to work uh, by having these, these the flesh stripped from these women's backs and put on his own back and so it's a, now, it's well, a different little touch. Once again, do my, my, the question comes to my mind is that are these women supposed to be virgins? In other words, mm-hmm. is this mm-hmm. some kind of mystic thing? Mm-hmm. This is something I bring up because in the next scene, the scenes after this, where we see Vandessa's kind of workspace, I guess you would mm. call her workroom, right. there seems to be some kind of scientific thing going mm-hmm. on here. Mm-hmm. She seems to be a fairly modern evil woman. Right. In that this does not appear to be some kind of mysticism. Mm-hmm. She's got, you know, test tubes and Bunsen burners and all the accoutrements of a, of mm. a chemist's lab, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But um, in this scene, anyway, we just see what she's doing, and it's pretty torturous, and Daninsky is horrified by it and yeah. mm-hmm. realizes what kind of dire straits he's in, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is probably not going to end very well. Yeah. And Melody dies at this point, too. She's one of yeah. the girls that they do this to, and so she is now dead. Le- leaving just our, our original two and the professor, who's somewhere, but he's been dragged off right. and it's is somewhere know, in the yeah. place, and we don't know where. So uh, once, once Sylvia is thrown into the pen with the girls, mm-hmm. we have... The princess, mm-hmm. Princess Olka, start talking to her and spots the fact that somehow or another Sylvia still has the the little silver mm-hmm. knife or mm-hmm. little silver dagger. Right, takes it away from her and says, "We can use this to escape." Yeah, quickly sets up with the other girls, mm-hmm. almost really a little too quickly. Sets up <laughs> really quickly with the other girls uh, a way to escape by uh, having one of them pretend to be sick, draw the the one guard in, and then mm-hmm. take him out. Yeah, stabs him in the back with a silver dagger. Kill, kills the guard and the women escape. Hmm. Now she immediately sends Sylvia off on her own. Yeah. Oh, Sylvia I was going to say too. Sylvia dagger. does. Yes. Yeah, Sylvia, Sylvia does. Yeah. For all the, the people in the audience who were yelling, "Don't forget the dagger!" In this case, she actually turns around and does retrieve the dagger. So, so yeah, she thought yeah. about that. So um, Sylvia uh, is sent off on her own, mm-hmm. while the princess and the other girls in there 
go off to wreak some some revenge mm-hmm. on their captor, i.e., Vandessa is about to pay. Yeah, yeah. and I like uh, what you know earlier. You you literally said the term women's prison. I mean, we're suddenly in a Jack Hill film for a few for a little bit now because <laughs> this suddenly becomes a because this this group of girls led by Princess Olga become this ass kicking little group. They take down some guards and you know they're they're like pretty formidable. So yeah, I suddenly felt like where's Pam Greer? You know, <laughs> well, it's either, either Jack Hill or or, or just Franco. One way yeah. or the other. Yeah. Ninety nine women time. I don't know. It's um. This this is this is this is very interesting because what we have here is Sylvie going to the torture chamber and and trying to get um, the gate unlocked so that she can release uh, Valdemar. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Olka and the women find well before before they find Vandessa, they they take down that one guard that they right, in the hallway, right, yeah. which. That, that that needed to be removed from the film because that scene just does not work. It's, it's very it's weak. It's very yeah. weak. Other than the novelty of actually seeing women do this in a in a Paul Nashy film, you know, of being so dynamic and and basically you and know and nice. taking care of themselves, and it is. It's a great touch, and and uh, we can't really say enough about how odd this is for a Nashy film. But yeah, the scene itself is a little. Uh, uh, it's not not real power, not real really well directed. No, it's 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 very poorly directed. If it had been, it feels as if they only had time for one setup. Right. Right. And it just and nobody really work. knows exactly what they're supposed to do, yeah, other yeah, than yeah. the fact it's, that they it's guard. Clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, they they the Olka and the and the other girls find Vandessa in her chemist lab mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, throw her to the ground, mm-hmm. hold her down, and mm-hmm. Olka shoves a great big scimitar sword straight through her chest. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this this is where she she refers to the other women as bitches, and yeah, all of a sudden yeah. the other she's wearing this. Nice split leg dress. She's very, she's very attractive when she she gets killed. While Sylvia is trying to get uh, Valdemar out of the out of the cage, the the uh, the, the bandits. It's uh, kind of like Sakakan's main henchman, I guess you'd call henchman. it, or his main main enforcer. Comes in, she hides <clears throat> while he's t- while he's talking to Daninsky. She whacks him in the back of the head mm. and is finally able to get Daninsky uh, loose from the the pennies in and get him unhooked from the wall. They go to make their escape, but the guy uh, is just dazed, wakes up, and we have uh, Daninsky fighting mm. Major Henchman. Yeah. And uh, winning, of course. He, mm. he, he kicks his butt, and then uh, they head on down the hallway and try to get out of there. Now, at this point, I'm not sure of the exact... He, he comes He comes to Saka Khan's place. Right, right, he, yeah. The, the, his, the, his main chamber. The main place. chambers of Saka Khan. We have the throwdown fight. Yeah. <clears throat> what, what really, in, in a normal film, would be... The end all be all, the, right. the the final battle between Saka Khan, this mm. big mean mm. bastard, and uh, Daninsky. not as a werewolf, but just as himself. Right, right. Which is very nicely done. This it is. is a great fight. Scene. It is, it is. It's uh, awesome. It's it's not perfectly directed. No, there's, no, there's a couple there's, of scenes that are a little awkward. Yeah, there's a couple of little parts that honestly just that that could have been better edited or or mm. better put together. But uh, Dan- but Nashi and his stuntman and the big guy playing. Uh-huh. Um, Saka Khan, yeah, Saka Khan a, do a great job. Yeah. It's, it's very athletic. It's a really very exciting fight. Vigorous. It's, it's yeah. exciting. It's well done. Mm-hmm. Every, every, there's all, night, all all kinds of neat little tricks. Uh, there are times when Nashi is kind of overselling some of the mm-hmm. action, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it looks a little cartoonish and fakeish. Right, right. But overall, it's quite well done. Saka Khan uh, tries <clears> to trick <throat> him into fall. Tries to trick uh, Nashi's character into falling into this pit, and uh, that he opens up in the floor of his room there with uh, spikes along the bottom. But he's able to turn the tables, and Saka Khan falls in, stabbing himself on the spikes below, killing him. And then as we see, Sylvia and uh, Valdemar look down, and not only is Saka Khan's body down in there, but so is the professor's, which right. is, of course, 
Sylvia's father. So we discover that the professor has died at the evil hands of Sokka Khan as well. Mm. At this point, they escape from the palace, stumble out into the snowy night. Wow, you know, it should be over. Yeah, it's they've like escaped. It's, yeah. <laughs> we just got to get our butts off this Himalayan mountain and get out of here. And hey, wait a minute. Remember. Do you remember what happened at the beginning of the film? Yeah, there was this other other character we've sort of all forgotten about. <laughs> and out of nowhere, for no good reason that anybody would ever be able to explain, no matter mm-hmm. how hard they tried, mm-hmm. the Yeti pops up. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Valdemar, under the moon, mm-hmm. transforms once again into a werewolf, we have the Yeti jump out and grab Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Which was probably the biggest mistake that sucker has ever made. <laughs> but you know, as uh, all all hairy, all completely hairy creatures just can't resist the woman. You know, it's what we've learned about. You know, any fur covered, you know, uh, uh, creature <laughs> just just loves loves to take the woman, and so he basically, for whatever reason, picks her up and starts to carry her off. Yeah. And uh, of course, this causes the werewolf to attack the big yeti, and we mm-hmm. have our werewolf, werewolf versus yeti, yeti battle. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed with this one again as it started. Because for whatever reason in the world, the director made the asinine choice to start this battle with the camera way back here, shooting through some tree limbs. Well, and some I have brush. a theory about that, but go ahead and say what. Okay, it is. well, well, after the battle begins, though, mm-hmm. we we the camera does move in. We do get some some closer perspective mm-hmm. uh, perspective shots, and we see what the heck is going on. Right. And then it's then it's pretty good. I like the way the the, the fight mm, ends, but mm. the beginning of it irritates the crap out of me because it's like, oh look, they're over there well, fighting. Yeah, I feel like I feel like um, if we were to see this this Yeti outfit makeup in the light of day, I have a suspicion oh. it's probably was not real uh, effective, and I think the director may have known that, and I think that. Because the way the fight is edited, even when we see shots of the Yeti's face, it's almost like these half, it's these real quick shots that are actually not badly done. And I think that the use of, I think that had to account for part of the reason why some of the fighting is done through trees. And, you know, it's a very, you know, obviously this, I'm sure this was a low budget film like most, I mean, I'm sure they did all they could, you know, with what they had to work with. But basically, if you're trying to have a monster that's completely covered in, in from head to toe in fur, if you don't have Rick Baker or somebody like that working on it. If you don't have some real, some really competent, it's a real hard kind of look yeah. to pull off, and I kind of wonder if the I hadn't thought about that. I really had. I kind of wondered if the Yeti, if they may have known, you know, this is more effective if we keep this character a little bit shadowy, a little bit of a distance, or just use it very effectively. And I think that the way the fight progresses, I think some of that editing is really well done because I do think that, like some of the fight is is once it moves in, but I you know I, I think oh, it's I, fairly I well agree. done. Yeah. Once the camera moves in, and once we start <clears throat> getting some better some better looks at mm. what is happening, the. Mm. The movements and mm-hmm. the, the actual beast on beast action. Once the, mm-hmm. the, the Fast mm-hmm. and Furious stuff starts to actually happen and we're in close and seeing what's actually occurring, yeah. then it's good. I like mm-hmm. it then. Mm-hmm. But I actually, the first time I saw this film, and even the second time I saw this film, mm-hmm. since I hadn't seen it in a while, mm-hmm. I thought to myself, oh man, oh man, mm-hmm. tell me we're not going to see this whole battle mm-hmm. from way back <laughs> know, here. Yeah. Because I am really going to feel peeved. Yeah. I mean, Come on, man, get in there. This is this. Is... Well, we've come to realize that sometimes the final uh, conflicts of a Nashi film or some final battles are not. Sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're not so well done. You know, and and uh... and sometimes, like here, mm-hmm. they're a mix. Yeah, a little bit of both. Yeah, there, mm-hmm. there's there's a little bit of anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's just say it. To my to my way of thinking, the the 
the battle between the werewolf and the yeti here at the end mm-hmm. is a bit anticlimactic. Yeah, especially <clears throat> after we've seen some really great both werewolf and human fights throughout the the film. Right. To, to me, the best fight in the in the whole the whole film is the the showdown between Saka Khan and Nanitsky. It is, yeah. Which has absolutely nothing to do with any werewolf right. or yeti or anything. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. It's very well done, and I enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah. This is anticlimactic, mm-hmm. and just kind of comes off as. It, it has me thinking, wow, mm-hmm. we could have done without the whole Yeti thing. That's altogether. one of the things I was going to bring up. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was going <coughs> to, at some point, uh, I was I was going to ask you, like, you know, did we really need the Yeti at, at, at all in, in, no. the, in the film? Um, it's funny, uh, of course, because this film was also known as Werewolf and the Yeti, I'm sure that it set up a lot of people's expectations for the Yeti to be somewhat more of the story. And I don't really mind, I mean, to a point I can see that it kind of makes the whole, once again, I get back to that whole thing about this region just sort of being a general region of demons and monsters, you know, and the idea of having it in there. But, you know, you basically got him in the first the movie and you got him at the last. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was first seeing this movie referred to under this name, I was I was saying to myself, you know, well, I got to hand it to Nashy, that's one monster rally I never thought of, you know, and all the years growing up as a kid thinking, man, why can't I see Dracula fight Creature from the Black Lagoon? I never once thought, boy, I want to see Werewolf fight the Yeti. That's a, So well, I, I, I had to give it points for uh, originality, but I think in the long run, it just really doesn't add a whole lot to the, well, <laughs> to it's, the it's story. Well, it's always, with Nashy, it is always Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, that's, that's the film. That's he pointed out again and again and again, yeah. every time he got to talk about the subject. Mm-hmm. That that's the film that mm. kind of woke him up as a cinephile, as someone mm. who just loved the movies. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, mm. and you see that mm. over and over and over again as kind of a template for mm. what he wants to do yeah. with these films. Mm. And I get it, I understand it. That's yeah. pretty cool. And if you think about it, think about it. This came out in 1975, which means they probably shot it in either 74 or 75. Right. Man, that's the height. Of the abominable snowman. Oh, very much Sasquatch, so. When you had in search of Bigfoot, all these like yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That is a great. It's point. It's a huge, huge mm. thing. Very much in the public awareness. Yeah. And so it had to occur to him or the producers who maybe suggested it to him. Mm. Hey, man, if we can have a werewolf and yeah, that's a good an point. abominable snowman mm-hmm. in this sucker, mm-hmm. we are. We're in good. The public's going to eat yeah. this thing up with us. Definitely would make it easily more sellable. Yeah, make it more easily to distribute and to have oh, that yeah. kind of yeah. I think that if if I, I, I'm, I'm I, it's unfortunate that no one really ever asked that question, at least in any interview that I've ever run across, right, right. because that, that's that's how I feel about it. Is I would want I have specific questions about every one of his films uh, that no. I have ever oh, seen. Oh sure, of course. Now he may not have the answers. And yeah. The answers may be lost to the mists of time. Yeah. But I have a lot of questions, and one of the questions that I have a really big one would be about this film and that aspect of it is mm-hmm. the abominable snowman thing. Like I say, that was a huge, huge thing. The all the in search of stuff. Yeah. The all that kind of thing. Foggy Creek and all that good stuff. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I so it, it just I wonder if it was an idea that wasn't really his, but he thought, hey, I can incorporate that. I can throw it in. That'll that'll make yeah. it more commercial and it'll mm-hmm. make the, the movie sell better. Mm-hmm. It, it seems logical anyway. Yeah. But uh once again we we come to the the most amazing Werewolf of London segment here where after he defeats the Yeti, rips its throat out essentially, mm-hmm. we have the most atypical moment of mm-hmm. a Valdemar Daninsky werewolf film. Yeah, yeah. Which is that, uh, lo and behold, he gets cured. Yes, yes. You heard it right. Heard it right, folks. <laughs> Believe it or not, eight films into the series, mm-hmm. Valdemar Daninsky, our Doctor Who of mm-hmm. werewolves, the man yeah. who hops around from time to yeah. time, place to place, period to period. And I want to touch on that here yes, we do. as well. We do. This is the only film 
where he survives and mm-hmm. is cured. You know what? You know what this is. Uh, kind of more universal. This is his House of Dracula. This is it because ah, there's one film right. that Larry Talbot survives and is cured. He only survives because he's cured. I think that goes. I think that's part of you know Daninsky. I think is very much into the werewolf floor. The werewolf must yeah. always die. Must always pay. And, but yeah. if you cure him, just like Larry Talbot got cured in House of Dracula, it's the only film he survives. And to my knowledge, now again, yeah. we're going to be rewatching all these things. But I think to, to, that this is the only film where where the Voldemort, Voldemort Daninsky character survives. Oh, uh, I believe that's yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I mean, we literally have a happy ending here, folks. I mean, and which is truly an, bizarre. This is not. Yeah. This is not what normally occurs. No. no. And um, there, there, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on this. First of all, of course, she finds the flower. Mm-hmm. Um, Uses the silver dagger, mixes it with her blood. And yeah, because we should mention that the werewolf, even though he's defeated the Eddie, he's so injured by the fight that he's temporarily out of knocked out of action. The werewolf is right. down for the count for a little bit here, so kind of s- semi-conscious. Yeah, and she <clears throat> uh, mixes her blood with the petals of this red flower, and then rubs it across his teeth. I found that interesting. Yeah, yeah. Got to be brave to be you know rubbing <laughs> your hand across a werewolf's teeth. <laughs> I mean, you know, even though you know the guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but once again, the whole idea of is she supposed to be a virgin? They they play with that a lot. Mm-hmm. The, they don't they dance around it. And like I say, I would love to know yeah. what other translations. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe some folks who, uh, especially in Spain, who are used to the Spanish language version of this. Yeah. Maybe that maybe that version of the film makes it more explicit. If so, please let us know. I'd be very curious to know mm-hmm. because if uh, all those women in the pen, the reason that she was using them for this uh, mm-hmm. you know skin peeling thing is because they were supposed to be virgins as well. Mm-hmm. That, that that's interesting, and, and to have that left out as kind of a, an extra little bit of titillation or yeah. exploitable bit of ballyhoo for a poster, you know, mm. you see the pen of virgins <laughs> tortured for man's pleasure, you know, something like that. Man, that Princess Oka wasn't no virgin, I ain't that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> we have our happy ending, and the film ends. They they walk off into the snow and... Now, I did, I did get a huge kick out of, uh, on the uh, Mark of Nashi uh, website, uh, the review of the film. The person writing the the review uh, of this of this film, talking about that happy ending. Well, first of all, it's, it's interesting that they say that Daninsky was, or excuse me, they say that Nashi was, always felt like the werewolf should die, and it seems like what they're saying in this review is that he was unhappy with this ending of this film, but I don't know where that comes from. It doesn't state, because yeah. certainly I've never seen an interview, it certainly doesn't state it in his book, no. um, but but I thought it was funny because the reviewer says, well, you know, he shouldn't have worried because basically these two people are wandering off in the uh, waste of Kathmandu, uh, basically just wearing their street clothes, so they probably would have lasted about another <laughs> night. night. <laughs> but besides all that, it is, yes, it's such a, I, I, I gotta ask you, when, when she uh, um, when Sylvia's first given the dagger earlier on in the film by the monk, I think we all, you know, we've seen this a million times, you know, we all know seen enough Nashi films um, that I think we all expected, okay, the film's going to end with her plunging the dagger into the werewolf's, werewolf's heart. She loves right, him. She's right. going to free him. That's how the film's going to end. And that's what you're, you, you expect for the whole film, that that's how, that's what the ending that we're coming to. And I even thought when she found the flowers, when the flowers were there and he was, the werewolf was laying down in the snow and she's going to get the flowers. I really thought that he was going to 
attack her and kill her, or she was going to have to kill him right in the presence of the flowers, like right oh, in the presence of Cure, because that would have been right up, yeah. I mean, that would have been Nashy all the way. That would have been what you would expect, the ultimate kind of with tragic... The two, with the two of them dying in each other's arms, yeah. right beside the flowers yeah. or something. But I would love to know if, uh, yeah, that's what you, I mean, that's exactly what I was expecting. I was totally yeah. shocked. That would have been, that would have been very interesting, very down and very typically Nashy yeah. ending. Yeah. But I was, I was, but I was, I was totally blown away, as you obviously were too, by the fact that it was like, a happy ending, something you know, it can't be. But, well, but it makes. But I would love to know if if it was. I would love to know if that was his choice, or if it was something that was put in, that was kind of forced upon him that he didn't want. I would. I would just really because to me, in some ways, the happy ending really fits with the more adventurous feel of the whole film. The film yeah. doesn't have the kind of tragic or. It doesn't have that tragic kind of heavy feel of say Mark of the Wolfman that we did, or or it doesn't have these stark. Uh, nihilistic feel of Horror Rises from the Tomb, you know, yeah. just to reference the two films we've done so far. The film really plays very much like an adventure film, and I feel like the ending kind of makes more sense in in, in well, light of that. N- Nashi has always referred to this one as comic, comic book-like. Book. Right. To me, it, it seems more... Uh, Instead of, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a comic book. I would describe it as in the in the same vein as the the classic chapter plays, the serials. Yeah, of the, the with the whole exotic 40s. setting, you know, like yeah. that. The you know, that's very much yeah, keeping with that kind of feel. So in keeping in keeping with that attitude and the whole adventurous mm-hmm. aspect of it, this action adventure feeling, the whole thing has. It would be great to see this done as like a Republic serial because it would be perfect. Oh, the story would fit perfectly. If you think about the way it's structured, it yeah. was its structure is very, very, very similar mm-hmm. to a whole lot of those Great Republic serials where mm-hmm. you have... There's a point at, there's a point in the movie where you have two parallel stories mm-hmm. that start... They, they, they start together at the beginning of the film and they only come together at the end, mm-hmm. which is whatever's happening to Valdemar mm-hmm. and whatever's happening to the expedition. Mm-hmm. During the whole course of the film, they never those things never come together until disaster has struck and the expedition is wiped out. Right. That's very much the same kind of pattern mm-hmm. of a lot of those old serials. Yeah. Being a big fan of the old serials, I I, I, I like this, but I was curious. Have you mm-hmm. uh, have you ever watched a lot of the old serials? Just a handful. Nowhere near as many as you. You know, I've I've watched. You know, uh, I'd say probably I probably describe it as a handful at this point. I'd love to see more. I mean, they're they're a blast. Uh, yeah, I've I've gone through and watched just as many as I can, and and the more the more I thought about that aspect of this film, the more it seemed a, pr- a pretty obvious one to one kind mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. thing. But the usual questions I like to ask when we come to the end of one of these discussions mm-hmm. crop up. First of all. We're both both surprised by the inclusion of a female heroic character yeah, yeah. who uh, kills her tormentor, mm-hmm. tormentor and gets away. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the strange thing about this is, like, like I say, contrary to the, what I've said about Daninsky's female character so far, we've got a bona fide female hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, she's a bit of a cardboard cutout of a character. Uh, oh, but, sure, yeah. But she's there nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you think the, the, the character was tacked on? Did you feel like it this was his idea or did you feel like this may have been wedged in by someone else? This was an mm-hmm. idea from outside him. I, well, it's, it's, it's interesting to say, cause it does go seem to go fly in the face of so much of what, uh, we, what, what his normal story ideas or his normal kind of plot points. I mean, it, it, certainly we expect that he will turn to the werewolf and the werewolf will be the one that kills Vandessa, you know, Vandessa on the right. other hand is, and so in some ways it may almost seems like a little convenient, that this character is here to sort of take care of these other things that Daninsky or that that the werewolf doesn't do. As far as you know, she frees the primo female prisoner, she kills Vandessa, she provides Sylvia with the means to escape. It's it's it didn't it didn't necessarily feel forced by outside forces to me. I mean, it 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 did it did seem you know I didn't I didn't think about that. It certainly could have been. 
But well, uh, let's put it this way: I yeah. I thought it was very interesting. I would have liked it a little bit more if we got a little bit. If we had maybe one more scene before she escapes, yeah, where maybe Sylvia and she are talking and kind of getting mm-hmm. to know each other a little bit, and mm-hmm. that's when she discovers that she has that dagger instead of the way it's presented in yeah. the film. Oh, it certainly happens. It certainly all all that takes place for you know we're in very the quickly. we're in the we're in the. Uh, Final fifteen minute rush or twenty minute, you know that we're always yeah. kind of comes with every Nazi film is the the race to the race to the finish line, folks. You know we're yeah, kind of in that yeah. point, uh, and and uh, and even though it makes for some great, you know, some action, it makes for some very nice pacing or fast pacing action. It's uh, it's it's definitely got that kind of feel of like that we could have used a little bit more with her character True. to make her not feel quite so just conveniently, you know. So do you think the, the do you think the story flowed well? Um. To I me, thought so. To me, I it thought moves. so. I do. It I do. Oh, very it's very effective. Yeah, yeah. It's not. Oh, it's no. It's not a. It's. It's not. I wasn't. It's not a dull film at any point. Oh, really? I mean, it definitely just clips along. Um, it doesn't meander into any kind of like I thought any kind of side avenues that that really seem out of place. I mean, no, it seemed like it all kind of kind of yeah. We, I thought it we've, clipped we've along talked well. a little bit about uh, Nashi's performance before. Um, what do you think about him here? I think I think he does a pretty darn good job almost completely across the board. Mm-hmm. There there were never any scenes in this one like there have been in both Our Rises from the Tomb and and Mark of the Wolfman, where I felt Ooh, we maybe needed another another shot at that scene because mm-hmm. he's a little stiff mm-hmm. or anything like that. And I don't know why that is in this film, but I there's there's not a single scene with him in it mm-hmm. as Daninsky where I felt as if he didn't hit it. Right, uh, right. He's not necessarily fantastic. But I also didn't feel like he flubbed. He kind of flubbed the emotion of what mm. he's supposed to be getting across here, either. Right. Um, and what's, and I thought his performance as the. I thought his performance in the makeup. I wanted to, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is what you thought of the werewolf makeup. But I think that his acting in the makeup is very good. But I wanted to see what you what you thought of the werewolf makeup this time around. I like the werewolf makeup quite a bit. I wasn't completely thrilled with all of the. Uh, let's call it the physicality of what he's doing sometimes because mm. I think. Once again, he's striving for the look and feel of how the werewolf moved and did things in Werewolf London. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to that film, this is a werewolf who, once he transformed, would put on a coat and yeah. pull on a hat yeah. <laughs> and go out into the foggy night and do his business as opposed yeah. to being just some animalistic right. thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, a an aspect of that to what he's doing, like when he's skulking around near that riverside, mm-hmm. carefully picking his way along the rocks. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like the same unfettered beast that we're used to seeing him play. Yeah, not as good as in Mark of the Wolfman, definitely. Not as good yeah, as the way yeah. he played. He, he's just a, he's a loping beast creature mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. In this, he mm-hmm. seems to be a bit more deliberate. Yeah, I thought, but I thought, I thought, the, I thought in the closer work with the face, what he did with his his eyes and, and facing some scenes is 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 pretty nice. You know, I, I see what you're saying about the, the some of the odd physical physicality overall of what of way he's acting as the werewolf but i thought that he had some good uh, as Daninsky, i think he's fantastic I, mm-hmm. the, the the best stuff for him in this is that uh, close-up when he's talking to the impaled impaled character yeah and those close-ups he's very good in that and it's once again what made me think that he mm-hmm. they probably sliced out mm-hmm. him mercy killing yeah larry i yeah. think that that's what i, happens I think yeah it's a, yeah i think you got a good point there i think it's very possible what happens there um how would you rate the direction 
pretty good, pretty good. I, I think it's. I noticed this is yeah, Mi Bonds or Miguel uh, Iglesias. I guess are the two, um, two yeah, ways yeah, I've M- seen Miguel, him. Miguel Iglesias, and then also Mi Bonds. His he was sometimes known. Yeah, his pseudonym. Uh, as far as I can tell, did I was 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 there anything else that he did with Nashi? Because I was not um, able to find Nashi anything. was in um, this Tarzan film that he made a couple of years before. Uh, Tarzan of the Jungle Mystery. Or oh, right, Pharaoh. yeah, the Tarzan, yes, okay, so he was in that. I was trying to find if yeah. if that was a, a, a Nashi film or if Nashi was in it because I he saw that M.I. Bonds had um, done, a, had actually made a Tarzan film. I've not seen, I'll be honest, I don't think I've ever seen any of this guy's films other than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look back and he apparently did a, a couple of uh, Eurospy films in the 60s. Uh, he did a, 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 a film about El Cid, Mm-hmm. In '62, his 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 directorial career apparently started in '42, mm-hmm. 1942. So the guy had been around for a long while making movies, but I have not seen very much of his mm-hmm. stuff, and I don't know how much of a chance we've had to see. Right. He does he stuff. does one film. He had one film called just called Rape. But if yeah. you read about it, it actually sounds more like a. It says that it's apparently a film that, from what I can gather, maybe deserves a closer look. But that it's actually not a bad supernatural horror really? film, uh, which is not what you'd expect from the title. But they say it sounds like it's actually a. Uh, uh, yeah, it came out, uh, came out the year yeah. after this. Yeah, know? so interesting. I, he, he also same year had a film called Kilma, Queen of the Jungle, come out. Mm-hmm. Um, Kilma, Queen of the Amazons. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that may be two separate. Films, yeah, like it's I'm actually a little positive. bit of a sequel to. Yeah, he hmm. may he may he may have made two films back to back, or that may be mm-hmm. some kind of mm-hmm. some kind of mistake. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to know without access to these movies. But doing things like uh, Tarzan film and some jungle films, that certainly kind of falls under the same obviously as somebody has uh, you know doing films that that have a certain kind of a feel of old serials or, or yes. in those kind of settings it, it, it makes sense uh, now Nashi has complained of, uh, truly and, and, and with some cause of, about uh, some of the filmmakers he worked with uh, in Spain not really having a, a feel for fantastic cinema mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of that crops up here where mm-hmm. he may he may be right in that I'm not sure that he ever felt he worked with very many directors that had a um, a handle on how to do this stuff the way he would have preferred. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that's 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 another that's another thing to go along. Now, this is not a very melodramatic film. No, goes against the grain for the typical Nashy storyline as uh-huh. well in that uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's also very little romance in the film. Uh, it seems kind of pared down to just the essentials. Yeah, and once again, I'm wondering if the whole virgin aspect of it. Is part of why. Yeah. Well. So yeah. Right. I mean, there's not the usual tryst that he has with the woman who loves him. It's obviously he and Sylvia, but they they don't really even have that much of a romantic. No, they don't even see. They don't, I don't think we ever even see them kiss. Right. Right. Yeah. So what what we have here is it's pared down to just cute girl, handsome mm-hmm. older man, mm-hmm. dangerous situation, affection, mm-hmm. and then love blossoms because it takes the monk mm-hmm. to say to Daninsky, she loves you. Right. Right. The thing with the romances in Nashi's stories is I've always felt that he would have been much better off uh, if he started the film with the love story already set. Um, in other words, the, the film starts, they're, they're in love and happy, but the, this curse, whatever happens to him, mm-hmm. threatens things. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we could infer all the things that make the romance believable without the clumsiness of wading through the finding of true love crap, which almost always comes off as a little silly and, <laughs> and just and just almost like uh, yeah they happen so the 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 romances happen so quickly the the girls go from like they meet in one scene and three scenes later or you know three minutes later they're they're hopelessly hopelessly in love and to the point that they're going to feet. kill them kill themselves yeah. for him or you know what so yeah, it, yeah. It, i've always wondered why he never 
never did that if he had some some reason why he thought that that wouldn't work as effectively mm. or wouldn't be as as mm. good dramatically on screen i don't know but if he'd done that it would have allowed the audience because we we fill in the blanks pretty effectively on right. things like that because if two people show up and are very obviously in a relationship we infer that they're mm. very attracted to each other that they mm. have a commitment to one another unless something right. else tells us different and he just seems to have missed the uh, the opportunity to bring that as part of what he was doing and mm. incorporate it smoothly into these stories in a way mm. that would have felt better mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So Now in the case, you know, although having said that, in the case of this film, that does go back to the question of was it important to the plot for Sylvia to be a virgin because had they started the film already in a relationship, we would probably have to assume that they were lovers you know, so right. so in this case, so, it's so a in this different. case, it wouldn't work. But right. it just as a general rule, yeah, I, no, I agree with you been, on what you're saying. He would have been smarter yeah. mm-hmm. to have started the films that way a lot of times, mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you don't have the yeah. uh, you don't have the question of their love getting in the you know this this burgeoning love getting in the way. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this film overall? Do you? I I didn't ask this about Horror Rises from the Tomb mm-hmm. because uh, I think we both obviously felt that Horror Rises is one of his best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it's such a strong film. With this one, um, I have to ask: Do you think this is uh, one of uh, one of his best? Do you think would you put this in the top thirty percent, middle, mid range, or bottom thirty percent? Where do you where do you fit this one into his into his films? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Really, I have to say, you know, I, I, I thought it was a lot of you know, I thought it was a lot of fun. I was very much entertained by it. Uh, more so, I last seen it years and years back on a very bad barely watchable uh vhs print i had found uh so uh, i did not remember enjoying it as as much uh, you know not expect to enjoy it as much and i really did um at this point now i'd probably put it maybe just outside the top like yeah you know out what if you're thinking of top 10 or something i might put it like it maybe it just outside that maybe more of a but leaning towards the you know better slightly better than average i guess i would that, put it. that's about yeah. where i put it if if yeah. um if you do, if you want to do those harsh kind of ratings, I always, always start uh, ascribing a number one to ten to these films, and it's like mm-hmm. for me, Horror Rises from the Tomb is like a, a strong eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a seven, mm-hmm. whereas uh, Mark of the Wolfman is a, a six, trying mm-hmm. to be a seven. Mm-hmm. In other words, this is a high mid range. This isn't yeah. this yeah. isn't one of his absolute best. No, and it it's so, but it's so different, and it does so many different kind of odd things. Yeah, yeah. that I really do enjoy it. Yeah, so it's a it's high mid range. Yeah, yeah, we'll say that (laughs) low high range. (laughs) Um, one of the things that the like I said, we this this is the eighth Daninsky film, and the thing we should point out if people don't know, and I'm hoping that they do to some degree or another, is that the Daninsky character, although he plays this same character in film after film after film, Mm -hmm. it's never the same person. Right, right. Every time this character turns up Mm -hmm. in a film. The, the the previous movies have absolutely no bearing on mm-hmm. the, the the character's background or right. what's happened to him. He starts every one of these movies mm-hmm. as just a normal guy mm-hmm. and becomes a werewolf during the course of the story. This is you you aren't following some guy who's a who's a werewolf at the beginning from mm-hmm. beginning the film to end. This is not like the uh, the Universal uh, mm-hmm. films during the forties where you were following mm-hmm. this this poor right. man trying to get rid of this awful curse. Um, this character starts over every time. 
Yeah. It, I jokingly refer to him as uh, the Doctor Who of Spanish horror <laughs> because uh, yeah. you know, he, <laughs> he, 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 it's the same name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the face may be yeah. the same, but it's not the same person. Right. Well, it's like, you know, in, 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 we, in Mark of the Wolfman, he's a sort of a down on his luck or sort of a philandering or, you know, a, aristocratic. Ne'er-do-well. You know, ne'er-do-well. In this film, he's uh, uh what is he not? You know, it's like we heard earlier. He's an anthropologist. <laughs> he's, a, he's a psychologist. He's a psychologist. He's a, basically, he's a general man of, just man of, can-do man of action. and uh, He can do damn near anything. But yeah, it is very different from, you know, there's certainly, you know, cases where a, 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 a director or a writer, uh, someone created an alter ego for themselves. Truffaut had Antoine Dunel, and, you know, the films that started yeah. with 400 Blows, and then you've got, you know, Chuck Bukowski had his... Henry Chinaski character that would that would, but they were essentially always the same type of person, and so this is a different thing in that in that it, this alter ego is basically just whatever Nashi needs him to be at the moment for the story, you know, whatever. So well, and here's the thing: um, of all the things that influence and in, have influenced what Nashi wrote and the the kind of stories he wanted to tell and the characters, he references this. He, he keeps calling this one a comic book story, and to a degree, I guess you could call it that. We've talked about mm-hmm. the the serials and. Even really the, the the cycle of universal horror films that he 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 so obviously loved, where there was a certain amount of continuity from mm-hmm. from thing to thing, and I think that I, I often wondered if it was really important to him to keep that character name going or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, he obviously wanted to keep making werewolf movies, right, right, but he didn't necessarily have to call this character that he played from movie to movie Daninsky, well, you know, Valdemar Daninsky. It could have mm-hmm. been anything. But uh, it, it is interesting that he made that choice. It makes me, uh, I, I, you know, we've, I've talked before, we've referenced his autobiography and what a good book it is. And it is a very entertaining read. Uh, there's things that are that you wish he'd given you more of in some cases. Uh, like, for instance, uh, when it comes to actually discussing the films in detail, you don't get a lot of that. And that's, that's, that's a common problem with a lot of autobiographies that are written by actors, you know, is they don't necessarily go into the films in the way that you wish that they would. And, in fact... Uh, Not of the Howling Beast gets all of one sentence in, in Nash's autobiography, oh, is where he's yeah. talking about the fact that he won an acting award for it, which is a which is a, a neat thing that he uh, did win an award. Uh, I forget which exactly which one it was, but he mentions that. But that's all he gives. I do know that in the I think it's the European or Spanish version of his autobiography. There's chapters that we don't get in the one in the uh, English translation. Really? Uh, there's a one called the there's a chapter he wrote called the Four Icons, uh, which apparently is about. Waldemar Daninsky, Alaric Demarnik, Count Dracula, one other character um, who is escaping my mind at the moment. Uh, but uh, those were the three, and then one more. But anyway, it would, I would have loved to have seen what he had to say, but if he said anything about what the Daninsky character meant to him, and it would kind of bringing up what you just said about you know, uh, was it important to to him that this character always be called Daninsky? Was that something that? You know, was yeah. I wonder if it's. I've often wondered if it was something he felt he needed to do uh, because it was expected of him, or if it's mm-hmm. something that he really felt he right. wanted to do. Right. But yeah. something that you and I talked about uh, outside the podcast about his films was the idea that um, one of the things that makes for me his story so interesting is that his creativity is the kind of creativity that you don't see a lot of in filmmaking anymore, regardless of whatever country you're talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, as much as I may love what uh, Quentin Tarantino does in something like Inglorious Bastards, where he is referencing and 
kind of absorbing and regurgitating brilliantly a lot of different types of, of film genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the spaghetti western, the World War II film, mm-hmm. uh, whatever whatever he wants to lay his hand to. Yeah. Filmmakers like him, of which he's a fine example, but there are many lesser examples, their references, their frame of reference for telling stories and for fiction is television and movies. Right. Whereas people of... Nashi's generation, their reference points were books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and folklore, stories mm-hmm. of that nature. Uh, as much as he loved movies, he was a voracious reader, and that yeah. is the type of education that he had. And mm-hmm. that's the type of education that I think served him in good stead when he was hopped upon speed writing <laughs> something in a day and a half like yeah. Car Rises from the Tomb. Right. And it and it fueled his creativity in a way because he was very steeped in Shakespeare, mm-hmm. uh, classic literature of various types. Yeah, yeah and, and especially mythology. He's talked a lot uh, he's talked a lot about this from time to time. And this little piece from uh, an interview with him back in the early nineties, uh, he had been asked if he if he thought that his work had been properly recognized by Fani- Spanish film critics. He says, as a whole, owing to the types of films that I make, I haven't received very good marks from the Spanish critics, nor even from what I call the gossip columnist. I think fantastic cinema requires a vast cultural appreciation in relation to legends, folklore, and the history of nations. And in some ways, the bad marks I've received prove a striking ignorance of these things on the part of the critics. For although they don't like it or consider it a cinema for the lower class, I believe it deserves at least some measure of respect, and it's certainly not deserving of the scornful attitude that it has received. Now, I think that that obviously points to his feelings and and his attitude toward the the modern, at his time, while he was creating films, the modern attitude of fantastic cinema, be it horror or dark fantasy or whatever you want to call it, being looked down upon, as it always is to one degree or another, because of the supernatural, Mm -hmm. the the fantastical elements of it. Whereas, as you can tell from his attitude, this is the type of thing that you grew up learning Mm. about and reading. Right. This is the kind of thing folded into Macbeth, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing that's just a part part and parcel of classic literature. Mm -hmm. Why do we want to treat those types of things as if Mm -hmm. they're lesser subject matter and that by merely presenting those types Mm -hmm. of stories, you're Mm -hmm. automatically questionable as far as being a serious artist or as being Mm -hmm. someone to be taken seriously? Yeah. He always felt that this was um, one of the reasons why his stature in the film community in his home country never got above Mm -hmm. a certain level. But... To my way of looking at things and looking back at his type of st- his types of stories and the way he told stories, it's one of the things that makes his films somewhat timeless because mm-hmm. they are rooted mm-hmm. in those older types of tales. Mm-hmm. They're rooted in books, right? Stories passed down mm-hmm. for centuries, first mm-hmm. word of mouth, from from mouth to mouth, and then in mm-hmm. in in scrolls and mm-hmm. and and books and everything. These are the these are the classic stories. The, the the fact that his reference points invariably were going to be literature, were mm-hmm. going to be folklore, mm-hmm. legends, and things of that nature, mm-hmm. is what makes them. Uh, it's what make the what makes these movies, in a large degree, something worth revisiting because they are taking those old pieces and turning them into something new, adding his spin to it, adding yeah. his creative flair, whatever he felt like adding to it, and going on with it. 
that can be done by anybody, and it doesn't it doesn't preclude someone making something wonderful that touches upon nothing but film and right. television references. But I think it gets harder and harder because I think in a way you're kind of getting further and further away from the kind of thing, the the yeah. kind of way of taking those stories in that automatically kicks your creative juices into gear. Yeah. Because movies and television, as much as I love them, are a passive way of absorbing mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Reading is something else. Yeah. Even having a story verbally told to you around mm-hmm. a fire fires your imagination, causes you to dig into that story more than absorbing it through television or a movie screen. It's the kind of storytelling that reveals depths mm-hmm. the further you go into it. It's not just surface. Right, and it's it's why his why was we always stress on here, his his stories are not his screenwriting and his his movies, his stories are not derivative. Yeah, they they because they are not just remakes of Universal films. You know, they they are homages to those films, but there's all this other thing that he's bringing to it. You know, that that his films are truly his own thing, his his own ideas. He's uh, he's playing with other other people's uh, ideas, but hey, yeah, you steal from the best. Exactly, you of course. Yeah, you you, yeah. you always steal, but you place your own you place mm-hmm. your own stamp upon it. Yeah, exactly. All right, I think that about wraps up our discussion of uh, the Night of the Howling Beast, or. Mm-hmm. Curse of the Beast, whichever title you'd like to assign to it. Oh, well, one thing though, oh, I just sure. thought of before we cut off here. Um, we always like to talk sometimes if there's anything that we've learned from an Ashy film, and in this case, <laughs> I've learned that if you have a, a a a want to imprison girls and and you know from time to time and and, and torture them for your own uh, medicinal needs, uh, you know, and who doesn't from time to time? Uh, <laughs> avoid capturing uh, princesses from Shakreen, you know, because they will. This is true because they have a tendency to be really mean spirited and yeah. uh, kill you. Yeah, <laughs> with swords. Uh, also, we've learned that. Uh, at the most inopportune times, Yetis will pop up out of the Himalayan mountains and oh. attack your woman. Yeah, especially and to, and you know, particularly when you've completely forgotten about them and thought that they were just something in the epilogue or, or the prologue. Excuse <laughs> the prologue, me, you know, yeah. they'll turn up in the epilogue and <laughs> and, and, and throw down on your. That's ass. right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think we've also learned that anyone whose last name is Khan is yeah. probably a bad guy. Probably is. Probably Don't want to yeah. be around him. Mm-hmm. Um, all stretching all the way back to you know Genghis and all mm-hmm. the way up through. Uh, Ricardo Montalban, for yeah, God's sake. Good point. So, avoid cons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Starting <laughs> spell, spell with a K. But do listen to Shaka Khan, because she, she, she's awesome. <laughs> yeah, she got all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that'll wrap, that, I think that'll yeah. wrap up as yeah. we uh, say goodbye to the eighth Valdemar Daninsky film. Uh, next time out, we're going to go through uh, a little dip into Egyptology. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, take a look at a subtitled version of his uh, mummy film, of the uh, Paul Nashie mummy film called Vengeance of the Mummy. Uh, another one, I'm sad to say, which is not commercially available. Uh, hope everybody who wants to get a look at this film can track one copy down. I hate right. to say go the bootleg route, but right. I just don't yeah, We're not. We're way. not condoning it. We're not suggesting it, but, you know, we'll look the other way. If you have, <laughs> whatever means necessary, you have to get these films. We love, we don't judge. That's right. That's right. So please, uh, if you want to play play along, next time out we'll be doing Vengeance of the Mummy. And uh, after that we're going to segue back into uh, some easier to find films on DVD. But uh, this uh, new, newly subtitled version of Vengeance of the Mummy is just a little too tempting to leave mm-hmm. alone. So until next time, this is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Saying please enjoy some Nashi and we'll see you next month.